anywhere within 300 miles of Medina. They are Hashemite Bedouins. They can cross 60 miles of desert in a day. Oh, thanks, Dryden. This is going to be fun. Lawrence, only two kinds of creature get fun in the desert. Bedouins and gods, and you're neither. Take it from me. For ordinary men, it's a burning, fiery furnace. No, Dryden. It's going to be fun. It is recognized that you have a funny sense of fun. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. Uh, With us in spirit, as always, is Ian Woodington, and I am thrilled this week to have back a former guest. You may have heard him on our Roman Holiday episode. He is the host of of the Best Picture cast, Kieran B. Kieran, how are you? Adam, I am doing well. I am happy to be here. I'm honored to be here, actually. I know, uh, I know that this is, uh, you know, this is, these are an important string of episodes for you, and this is a podcast that I appreciated over the past year quite a bit, and we're talking about a movie before we get there that I care a lot about, too, so I know it, it being one of Ian's favorite movies is I'm, I'm just very honored to be here and to be a part of it. Well, and that that actually is uh, before we even get to talking about uh, the film of discussion, which is Lawrence of Arabia, uh, before we get to our, our recommends for the episode, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because uh, Ian ran our Twitter feed and I ran the Facebook page and uh, I don't even remember how long ago it was at this point, but at one point he came to me and said, hey, there's this guy, Kieran, and he has his podcast, and we've been going back and forth. Um, and uh, we were, and, he's, and he was like, we should probably think about getting him on the show. So we, I listened to some episodes too, and we talked about it, and we got you on. So I was just curious, if you, if you wouldn't mind um, uh, taking a minute or two, just uh, how you found us and also just uh, uh, what it was your interaction with Ian. A little bit. Sure, sure. So we launched Best Picture Cast or the early part of last year, I believe the, the 1st of February. And upon undertaking that project, I kind of wanted to get a, a feel for some of the other podcasts that were out there with similar topics. I know the more mainstream ones that kind of inspired me to, to get moving on this project, but I wanted to kind of see who was out there doing something similar to what we were doing. I went through a bunch that really weren't grabbing me either, whether it was, was audio quality or just general content or personalities or whatever it was. And 1001 by one, along with Cinemus, were two of the 
two of the podcasts that really stuck out to me. You guys are doing something very similar in topic. Yeah. But it just I found myself going through each episode and really being able to to be engaged with them and and appreciate what you guys were doing. So that got me to to reaching out to you guys and just letting you know that that um the, that the podcast was kind of inspiring me with some ideas or whatnot and that I was appreciated and and in reaching out to you guys it was essentially reaching out to Ian because he was running that Twitter account. It was doing it through that. We ended up and this was last summer. This was probably like last July, so it's been about a year. And we just ended up develop, developing a nice relationship over over social media, just just chit chatting movies. You know, when he would see a movie, he'd, he'd drop it to me and say, "Hey, have you seen this?" I, I would do the same. If there were movies we agreed about or disagreed about, we would always kind of go back and forth in, in conjecture. And it was it was just a lot of fun getting to know him over the past year. And and you know, it's obviously upsetting where we're at now, but I'm, I'm honored to have met him and talked with him. And to 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 be on with you guys too for the Roman Holiday episode really meant a lot to me for sure. And and being here today is uh, means a lot as well. Well, I for one will just tell you thank you for for being on the show. And uh, yeah, you know Ian and I <laughs> we we always gab a little bit after we have uh, somebody on. Um, just because that's what you do, you know. Hey, what do you, what, are the, what's the likelihood that we're gonna have this person back on? And and you know, I mean, not that we wouldn't have anybody back on, but there are people who kind of rise to the top, and you obviously were one of them. And we could hear your passion with your set of friends over at Best Picture Cast. So, um, so thrilled to have you on. Thrilled to have you <laughs> trying to help me tackle this fucking beast of a film. Oh yes. Um, so, uh, so we're, we'll get into it very, very soon. Uh, but, but going through the old standard of, of how we do the show, uh, we will start with uh, weekly recommends. And as the guest, Kieran, I'd love to know what you're recommending to listeners this week. Absolutely. And I, so I picked a movie that kind of connects to what we're doing here today on multiple fronts. Uh, one is, I'm staying on brand with what I do over Best Picture Fest. It is a Best Picture winner. It's also a movie that kind of thematically ties in a bit with the movie we're discussing today and Lawrence Ribb. We can get a little more into that later. But another reason I picked it too, because this is a movie that both you and Ian more or less undressed on on one of your episodes or kind of, well, I want to say maybe dismissed it oh, as a Best Picture winner. I can't wait. Yes. And, and it was one that I actually was able to go back and forth with Ian about off mic you know, over, over, over Twitter and just talk a little bit about, and we had a good conversation about it. And he admitted that maybe it's one that he, that he had to revisit. And uh, that is from one of my favorite directors, much like Lawrence Arabia, as I'm a big David Lean fan. Uh, It's a Clint Eastwood movie and it is million dollar baby. Sure. The best picture winner of uh, 2004, I believe. Yep. That is correct. And yeah, so it's, it's a movie that, I know turns a lot of people off because of the, the well, I don't know the subject matter. We're not, we don't, I know you don't get into spoilers too big here at this, but I, if, if you think that, if you think that at this juncture in 2020, that million dollar baby is an uplifting tale, much like a Rocky four, you're, you're probably going to be a little disappointed <laughs> if you watch it. So uh, yeah. So I think that one of the reasons that I, I like to highlight this one is because I think it's a misunderstood movie and a movie that, that is, because it's a bit of a bummer, it just makes people just look away and say, I don't need to revisit that. And they tend to focus on the, the through line of Hilary Swank's character, where I think the main story being told there is through Clint Eastwood's character and Frankie and his relationship with his daughter in the movie, sure, who we don't get to see on screen. 
So it, it's it's a movie that you know, as, as someone who is a um, who coaches who coaches uh, athletics, getting into the psyche of a coach and what it takes to get involved with that at such a at such a high level, at such a it, what what Frankie in that movie is essentially doing is he's coaching boxing at a championship level. He's trying to grab the brass ring and get to get to the top, and the toll that that takes on his family. And his relationship with his family and his and his identity as a person, and we'll see when, when discussing Lawrence that you know Lawrence's identity is a major issue for him as well as he tries to uh, to lead to lead a military to uh, to what's essentially uh, an unattainable goal or what many thinks an unattainable goal. So I, I think it's a movie worth revisiting. I'm sure that there aren't a ton of people at this point who haven't seen it or or don't know much about it, but yeah. I would. I would throw it out there to go go in, get 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 over the the, the through line of the main character and Hilly Swank, and just kind of look at at the relationships of the people involved and what it entails. And I think that there's a lot more to that movie than than gets dismissed. You know, I it's so funny. Uh, a couple months ago, I listened to a podcast on it. I don't you have have you done you haven't done it on yours yet, have you? We've not. No, okay. I've been intentionally saving it. That's going to be in the back end. Of, yeah. Okay. Um. So I I listened to a podcast on it and. It did make me think more about it, and I by no means think it's a bad movie. And I definitely won't, won't speak for Ian, but I I just know how much me uh, uh, Ian and I enjoyed Mystic River, and both thought mm-hmm. that Eastwood was robbed because they gave the uh, you know way to go Peter Jackson for shooting a whole bunch <laughs> of footage. Um, here are eleven Oscars, um, which you know uh, kind of sucks because I-, I thought Mystic River was great. Million Dollar Baby felt like a concession, which is unfair, and I and I I can say that uh, because I don't think that Million Dollar Baby is a bad film. Um, it wasn't my favorite of the nominees that year. That would be Sideways, um, but I certainly enjoy it, um, and I do think it's unfairly maligned. I do, and it's also. It's also kind of easy to parody, I think, because of of that, and it, and it has been a little bit. Um, but it is not a bad movie at all, at all. Yeah, and another one that because you guys you guys had said the concession situation with it, I know Departed's another one that always gets that too. You know, oh, it's just Marty's makeup Oscar. But you know, Departed's another one where you look at, and I look at the nominees that year. The Departed is the best movie oh, of those nominees. Oh, it in totally my was. Yeah, no, it was, and it I was. kind of. Yeah, and I feel that way about Million Dollar Baby too. Now, I think that if they're the best, there was or that was probably the movie that wasn't nominated in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, yeah, that one I could see the flip on. But as you know, as I love Sideways too, I really do. But like, in any world, was it going to win Best Picture over Million Dollar Baby, even if Mystic River never existed? I don't know. Yeah, I okay. don't know. And I think on the episode you did mention that you did you, you looked at the nominees and 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 you said, well, I, I looking at these nominees, I can see why it won. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. But no, Million Dollar Baby is a solid recommend. And yeah, if you haven't seen it, it is worth a watch. B- bummer ending or not, it it's still it's a cathartic ending. And there are bummer endings that are just bummer endings. And then there are yeah. bummer endings, but it, there's there's something learned, something gained from it. So, yeah, yeah, it's 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 a thought provoking and interesting movie if you allow yourself to go there. And uh, I think it's worth it's worth a, a second look if you kind of saw it for the first time and didn't totally understand why why it was praised and it's it's unfortunate that it's gone a little forgotten over the over the last 15 years or so but maybe uh people will start to revisit it we'll see i mean yeah it got it got clint his second second best doctor actor uh director uh yeah there you go. so that's i mean that's not nothing um 
Well, great. Cool. Okay. So, so million dollar baby. Um, mine, uh, my recommend is, is I don't think anywhere close to related to what we're talking about today, but I bring it up because, um, I, I just saw this. This is a pretty new movie. I saw this last Thursday. Um, and boy, was it not what I thought it was going to be. So I saw the new, uh, Nicolas Cage movie pig. Have you heard about pig? I have, I have. I know a few of our uh, our best picture cast co-hosts are going to see it uh, see it this week in theaters. I, I, I can't make it myself, but I'm. It's definitely super intriguing. So how was it? Uh, it? It was good. So, um, I first of all, what I'll say is I I hate movie trailers. I I, I fucking despise them. Um, I I don't. I'm with you. It, it, they tend to give away too much, and it, it 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 ruins a lot of the movie for me. So, um, I. I watched like 30 seconds of the trailer for this movie and I got strong John Wick vibes in the sense that we have a main character who has an animal that he's very attached to and the animal gets taken away from him and thus, you know, puts him on this journey to, to, uh, for revenge. Um, now in this movie, Nick Cage plays a, um, a former chef who now has, uh, resigned himself to the woods with this pig and he's, uh, he's a truffle hunter and this pig is, good at finding truffles uh he has um uh, a dealer if you will who he sells them to who i forget his name but he is the son and hereditary is the the guy who he kind of interacts with in the movie and uh one night nicholas cage wakes up and some men are there and they beat him up and they take his pig and then he he thus brings him into the journey for finding it um but that honestly is about where the john wick comparison stops because it really ends up being uh this story about nick cage and who he was before he went out into the woods and just how uh, infamous he is in town. And also the, the story of this, this kid who he's selling the truffles to and his father and this sort of um, uh, disintegrating relationship that they have. Um, it, it, it also, it's great because it's a Pacific Northwest movie. It takes place entirely in Portland. There are some fuck Seattle jokes in there, which made the entire audience laugh because you know, it's, you can make fun of yourself. It's okay to say fuck Seattle. Um, and uh, it ends up being this really sweet, like kind of poetic film. And, and they don't they don't force feed a lot of the information. You don't totally know why everybody does what they do in the movie. But it's it was really captivating. And the Michael, uh, the, the Michael, the director's name is Michael Sarnowski. This is his feature debut. He's done some TV, but not a lot. Um, but he wrote and directed this. It's got real style to it. Um, it's beautifully shot and just a fucking hell of a performance from Nicolas Cage. Uh, it's, it's really good. I mean, I don't know what the, what the year is going to look like in terms of accolades for, for movies, but regardless of what happens at the end of the year, he was stellar in it. Yeah. It's really well reviewed and it looks really intriguing to me. So it's going to be one I definitely check out. And I would love to see Nicolas Cage back sitting at the Oscars, even if he's just sitting there, I would love to love to see that, but we'll see if, um, if it's something that he'll, he'll get recognized for. I mean, he still gets to do what he likes to do, but it's also really toned down. I mean, it's it is not as big and crazy as as he can go. And we all, I mean, we know what Nick Cage can do, and and he's allowed to go there at times, but it's not throughout the entire movie. And it it works, it, it just works really well. It just works really well. Yeah, he's one of those guys, along with Tom Cruise, that I've kind of just been silently hoping get that that second wind of prestige to their career where maybe they can, they can go and go. I mean, Cage already has an Oscar, yeah. but uh, you know, Cruz is a guy who I, I think is 
one of the better actors who doesn't have one. I know he's kind of gone off the deep end a little bit, but he's more committed to his his action movies. But it would be nice to see him as an older man, maybe come in and do one of those supporting roles that that the Academy likes sometimes and, and get get a rec- some recognition there. I, I would be fine with that. But I, th- I feel like he might have forgotten that he's not Ethan Hunt. So uh, <laughs> if hopefully hopefully he, he realizes that he's not, because I do think when he wants to, when he wants to do a Magnolia, when he wants to do a, a Born on the Fourth of July, he can. He just I don't think he wants to do that right now. He wants to do his yeah. Top Gun Mavericks and his his Mission Impossible 15s and whatever the hell else he's going to be doing. So, yeah. And as as long as he can still fly jet planes and do backflips off a helicopter, I say, why not do it? I guess. you know? Exactly. Exactly. Um, so. So perfect. There you go. So uh, we've got Million Dollar Baby. Totally. Yes. Totally on brand for Best Picture cast and uh, Pig. Uh, so. So there you go. Um so perfect. So we're gonna just get into this movie, and uh, yeah, we have a we have a little we have a little indie flick to talk about, Tara, right? like an eight twenty four <laughs> chamber piece. With this. Yes. Yep. Yep. That's, that sounds about right. <laughs> um. So the movie we're talking about is Lawrence of Arabia. Now, um, before we even get that far, um, I want to ask you. Uh, prior viewing experiences, what, like, where does this fall? How many times have you seen it? And when maybe was the first time you remember seeing it? Sure. Uh, so, I mean, I remember the first time I saw it really well. I had going into college kind of when I wanted to embark on seeing every best picture. And that's kind of like a college thing. You get fired up about something and you, you probably knock off about five to 10 and then you get you get lost in college and you go by the wayside. So after I graduated from college and you know, you're in that year after college when you have time to do things like watch uh, every best picture winner, that's when I really locked down on it. And Lawrence of Arabia was kind of one that was always a bit of the golden goose for me. It, it was intriguing to look at. I knew very little to nothing about it. And I just sat down one day and, and said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to block off two days. It's a, it's a two, two part movie with intermission. I'm going to watch it on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. And every time I've revisited, I've always watched it the same way. I watch it in two sittings. I think it's, I think it should be watched in two sittings. I think in many ways it's two different movies in one. Yeah. That's it fair. was even kind of shot that way. I'm sure we'll talk about all that as, as we do it. But I just was completely blown away by, by the movie. Uh, and, it just when when you see him in the opening scene on a motorcycle, I went, wait a minute, this is not what I thought I was going to be watching here today. I thought we were going to be on sand and horses and like the twelve hundreds. I didn't I didn't know what was going on here. So it was it was a jolting experience for sure. Well, and that's that's funny you say that, and that's very true. I mean, I think because they're they're on camels and horseback like the entire time for for long stretches. You don't see a train. You don't really see weapons. I know. I, I don't we're, we're not going to talk we're not to the movie yet but I just I just want to jump on and say that the first when they when the planes fly overhead the first time we see Prince Faisal it almost it's jarring to go wait 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 when does this movie take place it was it was yeah I t- totally agree totally agree um uh before yeah, I get for you well uh before I get to mine I just want to uh Ian planted this bug in my head because uh, in, in all of the many, many hours of, of non-podcast movie talk that we did, um, he was bragging to me because he, he said that uh, if he could go back in time, he would change us because he, he was talking about Liz, his, his wife, um, 
that the first time she saw it was on 70 millimeter at the Cinerama in Seattle here. Oh, wow. Um, Jeez. And I got really jealous. And then it made me think about the, I've, I've seen this movie twice before. I, and I, I had the same thing that you did when I was, I, I was just about to start college and I, I had an intro to cinema class it was one of my first classes. And so I, I took it upon myself as, as a burgeoning film cinephile, you know, uh, I, I went down to the local video store and I rented four movies on VHS cause they were old and what a, I, it was a, a hell of a weekend. And I don't think my 18 year old brain really was able to comprehend all of it. I got uh, citizen Kane, which, which I, I enjoyed then um, birth of a nation, which even 18 year old Adam was like, this movie's not, this is not good. You can't, can't, can't do this. Um, uh, Gone with the wind, which was also like, wow, I just am picking some bangers this weekend. And Lawrence of Arabia. So unfortunately, I was 18 and watched it on my 23-inch tube TV in my room. Um, not ideal. And then um, the first year I started teaching, I watched it again, but on my laptop on a really shitty DVD copy. So um, this year, uh, I had I bought the 4K. It, ca- it comes in a big Columbia Classics pack, and I watched it on my on my nice TV, and I, I watched it. It, I, in like it, it's not 70 millimeter it's not the way that ian got to see it but like i was like oh yeah this is i've i've done myself wrong by watching it the way that i had twice before um so so in in terms of viewing experiences this was just great to be able to actually see it in not all of its glory because because i i haven't but this was way better than i've ever seen it before um so yeah yeah I mean, I mean, yeah, to, to experience that in theaters. And, and the question always, you know, kick, gets kicked around. If you could go back and see one movie when it premiered, when it came out, you know, what would it be? And I, Lawrence Arabia is always one that I, I lean toward dancing. Probably like Lawrence Arabia and Jaws are probably two that sure. I would, you know, just to be in that theater on opening night to, to see what that was like. Yeah. Those would be probably two of the first places I'd go. I know. I, 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 a lot of people say Jaws and Raiders, and I always tend to be I, – I, what I want to say in response is, yeah, me too, because then maybe I'd understand why people like those movies so much. And then people get really <laughs> and then people get really mad at me, and it's so much fun. It's so much fun. Um, so, so there's that. Um, okay, so there there go. we go. Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, this movie is directed by David Lean. Now – uh, David Lane is in the book a handful of times outside of Lawrence of Arabia. Here are what they are. Uh, Brief Encounter from uh, 1945. Great Expectations from 1946. This is in his I'm going to adapt Noel Coward and Charles Dickens phase. Uh, so his movies weren't as big but still highly regarded. Um, and then we get to uh, the other three, just like Lawrence of Arabia, are big, sweeping, long, fucking epic movies. And those are The Bridge on the River Kwai, Dr. Shivago, and A Passage to India. So... Again, stopping before we even get to talking about the movie. Earlier this week, I watched Bridge on the River Kwai and Dr. Shivago oh, yeah. to get the to get the lean experience in. Um, so I was curious to know, uh, since you do Bridge on the River Kwai was a best picture winner, and that's that's your that's your whole bag. Um, brief bridge thoughts and and if you've seen Dr. Shivago, any Shivago thoughts? Yeah, I have seen both. Bridge in the River Kwai is another one of my all-time favorites, and it is everything I like about David Lean, and I, I kind of view this, I'm glad that you watched that before this, because I kind of in many ways view them as sister movies, as oh, sure. that was where he, Bridge is where he put together everything he could, he was capable of doing, and really, really getting it on screen in, in its biggest form. 
And Lawrence is now that I can do this, I'm now going to perfect it. And, and it, it, it is just, if you, if you just die, if, if you thought you couldn't dial it up any more than bridge in a river Kwai does it then with Lawrence Arabia, it's just a wonderful movie with tremendous performances. Uh, Sir Alec Guinness in that movie is an all time best actor winner. In my opinion, he'd, you know, he, he'd be up there top on my list as far as, as if I were ranking the winners. I uh, I know another one that, that me and Ian would always go back and forth that because he gave poor William Holden such a hard time. Yeah, uh, he, and, he really yeah, did. Yeah, we I know you mentioned uh, our our Roman holiday recording and just for the listeners so they know after the recording is over, I think the three of us chatted for a bit, basically another hour, uh, just about movies and about all sorts of things. And William Holden, yeah, I think that Ian's quote was, uh, "He's the worst part of that movie." <laughs> And I said, I don't, I don't understand. And he goes, well, it's true. Uh, so yeah, I, I love William Holden. I love him in that movie and, and most of the things he's in. I feel like, but, he, I feel uh, like he said he was the worst part of all movies. I, I, I really, yeah. I think he was just not, he was not into William Holden at all. <laughs> yes. He's not, was not a, a William Holden fan, but uh, nevertheless, it, it's just a tremendous movie with, with great performances up and down and, and all the all the things you'd expect from a, a, a big David Lean movie. Doctor Zhivago is maybe probably what happens when you take it a little too far as to, in the epic genre. Uh, I love it. I would not fault anyone for hating on it. I totally get why someone has a hard time watching it. It is very long and very slow, and it's almost like David Lean was like, "All right, we made everybody stay out in the desert." For months and now we're going to the mountains and we're gonna freeze to death and and he just had to he had to get both ends of the of the scale there so uh, how was your how was your experience with the two movies this week well i'll, I'll start i'll start with dr shivago because if if we if i if ever had done an episode on this movie it would have been easy this should not be in the book and um i i would have looked through and scoured and found some 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 kind of an epic uh, something on a, on a big scale to replace it. Ho- hopefully that would have been my, my idea. Um, I think everybody is fine in it. Um, uh, I know, and we, I mean, part of in the research, you know, uh, when Omar Sharif signed on to do Lawrence of Arabia, Columbia signed into a seven picture deal, Dr. Shivago being one of them, which is great. And I'm so glad that somebody who was pretty unknown in America was getting to play such a big role. I don't think he was right for the role, both in terms of um, his acting ability or act or just like him not being Russian, him being, and I, and I, I hated read. I did, I did some research on Shivago and I hated hearing how much work they did to make him look less Egyptian. And it made me feel so bad for him. I know, I know this is decades later, but like, I just, I just, it's like, Jesus, he went through hell to do this movie. And I mean, that's another, that's a lean thing over, especially with bridge Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago hit him sort of being a sort of dictator director. Um, but I, I did, I couldn't really, I didn't dig it. I, I didn't really get it as much. Um, bridge on the river. Kwai is, is great. Um, I, I definitely enjoyed it, but, um, I take some qualms because, uh, this is so this is the second of the seven episodes that we're doing and the first one I did with with Melissa my wife who who you've met now mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. we did 12 angry men and um not only uh was uh, did Henry Fonda not win best actor because Alec Guinness did he wasn't nominated and I 
I, I ooh ooh I take I take some umbrage with that because I I think that that performance is worthy of like three Oscars and it didn't get one. Yeah. Um. So so that's that's just that's just my thing. But um. But but Alec Guinness is not bad. He's great. And I think actually him and uh, William Holden and Jack Hawkins are all are all great in the movie. Yeah, I mean, Twelve Angry Men's another of my top favorites. We're going, we're, we're knocking them off one by one here. So it's, you know, it's always tough when you have two, you know, two of your favorite movies in in the same year. I dealt with that with Million Dollar Baby and and Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Minds, yeah. same type of deal. So you know, it's something you have to do. With. Henry Fonda's performance in Twelve Angry Men is uh, absolutely wonderful. I I can't I can't disagree with you there. Well, that won't be uh, that won't be the last time I mention him in the podcast, but we're not there yet. So, okay. uh, that's our just brief David Lean stuff. Uh, this was written by Robert Bolt and Michael Wilson, uh, who was blacklisted at the time and only got credit for the movie later. Uh, loosely based on uh, Lawrence's book Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which we will um, we'll bring up later because I have I have some questions for you because I've I've definitely heard. Uh, 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 a conversation take place on a couple of episodes of your show that I would like to bring up here. Mm. And I'm sure Ian and I have had it as well. So um, there we go. Sure. Um, so we'll launch into this cast. Um, uh, oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, this cast. So uh, I'm just going to run through it quick <laughs> and then we'll talk about it a little bit. So uh, of course we have Peter O'Toole as T E Lawrence, Alec Guinness as Prince Faisal, Anthony Quinn as Auda Abu Dai, uh, Jack Hawkins as Gen- General Allenby, Omar Sharif as Sheriff Ali, uh, Jose Farrar, who is listed as the Turkish Bay, Anthony Quayle as Colonel Brighton, Claude Rains as Mr. Dryden, Arthur Kennedy as Jackson Bentley. He is the reporter in the second half of the movie. Uh, and Donald Wolfett is General Murray. And then um, I have three others and they uh, they're smaller roles, but I, I but they play important parts of the sh- uh, in the movie. And that's I.S. Johar as Gassim, Michael Ray as Faraj and John Demesh as Daoud. Um Anybody that I left out that you would like to show a little love to? No, I think you covered him pretty good. I was going to make sure you mentioned uh, I.S. Johar as Gassim because he uh, obviously plays a, a major a major presence in the movie. I guess we can also throw out uh, the the guide, uh, Lawrence's guide, Tafas. Yeah. As, uh, he's Zia Moyedin, and he's, though he doesn't have a whole ton of, space in the movie that was the role that omar sharif was originally supposed to play yes before they upgraded him that is correct so that is correct a good piece of trivia we can just check off there thank you yeah that's it and and he's just a part of my, my favorite part of this movie too oh well, that, let, whole well, well scene. we'll save that we'll save that um absolutely okay so now we're to to accolades um this won a shitload of oscars uh it won best picture director cinematography editing art direction, score, and sound. Uh, it uh, lost three of those, uh, or it lost three others. It lost, um, well, it lost Best Supporting Actor to Ed Begley in Sweet Bird of Youth, who was in 12 Angry Men, so there's a little callback there. But it also lost Best Actor and Adapted Screenplay to To Kill a Mockingbird. We're going to put a pause on that because I know how you feel. We're just a Brief mm-hmm. pause, brief pause. Um, uh, at the BAFTAs, it won, it won best British film, British actor, British screenplay and film from any source. It lost foreign actor, uh, to Anthony Quinn at the Globes. It won picture director, supporting actor, cinematography, and two promising newcomer awards for both Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif. It lost, uh, two best actors because they also nominated Anthony Quinn for lead, um, and score. Uh, it won the DGA uh, it was a national board of board of review top ten and one best director there. 
On the AFI, it is number seven on the current list, and it was number five on the former list. Um, uh, uh, the BFI Top 100, it is the number third film behind uh, The Third Man, which there's an episode of our show on, and Brief Encounter. Um, here's the thing about David Lean on the BFA top one, BFI Top 100. He has three films in the top ten and seven films overall on the list. He is the most highly decorated director on the BFI Top 100, which just goes to show you uh, how much they like him over there. Um, uh, and I had, I thought I had one more. Oh, it is uh, currently number 81 on uh, Sight and Sounds Top 100. They update that every decade, and uh, it is number 81. Hey, Kieran, was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? It was indeed in 1991. Quite a big year and a year that there were a few 1001 by one episodes on, I believe. Yes, indeed. Yeah, we uh, uh, City Lights we did this season. Um, Sherlock Jr. was a part of our uh, one of our earlier episodes. Uh, it was a Buster Keaton double feature. We did that and The General and uh, an upcoming episode. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, there were a few others in there, too. Some some best picture nominees and a best picture winner. Uh, the best picture winner was Gigi. What are a your place in the you, uh, what are, yeah yeah Gigi, I say, what are your I haven't I so because I was curious because you got me thinking so I've seen two thirds of the best picture winners uh, okay it's pretty good and there is there's a chunk definitely from the uh, you know the 30s to 50s range um, Gigi being one that I haven't seen uh, what's your like what's your 10 second take on Gigi yeah Gigi where I believe we have an episode that's going to be coming up on that one it's it's a musical it's a little it's a little bit of a, a goofy musical it's kind of odd and and weird and in, in some you know creepy sorts of ways as far as you know older <laughs> older men romancing younger women oh great it is uh yeah it's uh Les Leslie Karen is the star in that it's the same director as an American in Paris yeah so I would go it's Vincente Minnelli right Yes, yeah. So I, if we're going Vincente Minnelli, I would recommend An American in Paris before we would go Gigi. But yeah, Gigi is just kind of one of those odd musicals that just exists on the list. And, you know, you got to get through it if you get into the list. So I, I, I know some people, some people like it. You know, it's it's not it's not an unbearable watch. Gotcha. It's runtime is acceptable. You know, it, it, it it's not going to be the biggest issue you run. Into okay. It's it's no it's no Cimarron. It is no simmering. Great. No, good, no, good, for sure. good to know. <laughs> yes. Uh, other ones uh, also inducted that year. A Place in the Sun by director George Stevens. That's one I saw for the first time this year. Really appreciated. King Kong. Yeah. Another great one from 1933. Yep. Uh, Frankenstein, if we're going with the big monsters. Uh, another Best Picture nominee, I'm a Fugitive from the Chain Gang. That's a throwback. And then one that has come up with you guys a little bit of 1001 by one. Because I believe Ian was having trouble finding it, and because I guess it was it was out of print for a while, and then there was like this app that popped up, and I saw it, and that's one of the one of the times I reached out to him and say, "Hey, I think I found it." And that's greed. Yeah, yeah, that's been one he's been interested in. I, I since I mean since we first were like seniors in high school and got our hands on on this book, um, and I uh, still still haven't seen it, um, but I know I, I I think he was just oddly fascinated, like the fact that he couldn't find it. He was just like, "Oh, I need to seek <laughs> out." this movie um so yeah a lot lot of good a lot of good stuff that came that was inducted that year um uh so uh it is currently number uh 103 on the imdb top 250 that is between ikaru which is a uh, kurosawa film and the kid which is an early chaplin film one of his earliest full-length features um 
Well, I got to tell you. So anytime on the show that we can do a review from Bosley Crowther, we do it. And do we have a Bosley? Holy shit, we do. Now, now before I before I read this, have you read this review at all? I have not. I have not. So I was I was very disappointed that the the last time I was on here for the Roman holiday, there was no Bosley Crowther review. So I didn't want to get bummed out again. I was just going to roll through. And if it popped up, I'd be pleasantly surprised. And here I am pleasantly surprised. So okay. hit, hit me with it. So, so I'm, I'll read it in, in the stupid voice that I do. And I'm going to read more of cool. it than I normally do because, because I just I need you to hear what he wrote. Okay. Um, so I'm here for this. Everybody for just this. bear with me. Okay. Like the desert itself, in which most of the action in Lawrence of Arabia takes place, this much-heralded film from the famous British soldier-adventurer, which opened last night at the Criterion, is vast, awe-inspiring, beautiful with ever-changing hues, exhausting, and barren of humanity. It is such a laboriously large conveyance of eye-filling outdoor spectacle, such as brilliant display of endless desert and camels and Arabs and sheiks and skirmishes with Turks and explosions and arguments with British military men, that the possibly human, moving T.E. Lawrence is lost in it. We know little more about this strange man when it is over than we did when it began. Why Lawrence has a disposition to join the Arab tribes and what caused his streak sadism is barely hinted in the film. The inner mystery of the man remains lodged behind the splendid burmoosed figure and the wistful blue eyes of Mr. O'Toole. The fault seems to lie first in the concept of telling the story of this self-tortured man against a background of action that has the characteristic of a mammoth western film. The nature of Lawrence cannot be captured in grand super Panavision shots of sunrise on the desert or the scenes of him arguing with a shrewd old British general in a massive Moorish hall. The fault is also in the lengthy but surprisingly lusterless dialogue of Robert Bolt's overwritten screenplay. Seldom has so little been said in so many words. Bosley Crowther uh, fucking uh, did not like this movie. <laughs> whoa. I got derailed like three times. <laughs> I, I've heard some takes. I've heard some takes in my day. And I understand that this isn't everybody's favorite movie there are some people who don't love this movie and and there's that's fine <laughs> to say that t.e lawrence got lost in this in this movie he's literally on screen the entire time i i i don't yeah. i certainly don't agree with it i i see the seed of a thought which is that parts of of lawrence's decision making and and persona is mysterious but as you kind of already alluded to at the beginning, the who are you aspect of Lawrence is sort of what we're driving at the entire time. Lawrence is trying to figure out who he is. And we could talk a little bit about the real Lawrence in, in, a, in a moment. But well, yeah, I, I got to say, uh, and, you know, I'll just glean to the next thing, too, is that this has a 93 audience and critical Rotten Tomato score, which obviously means that some people don't like it. But I was so surprised to hear how much Bosley Crowther just didn't Whoa. enjoy the movie. And the, the, uh, the Robert both overwritten screenplay. I, I can't get behind that. Uh, you know, and I'll get into my thoughts on the screenplay later, which are all glowing. I <laughs> the, the, saying something's overwritten is such like a, like a critical dick comment, you know, like, yes, there are many scripts that are overwritten, but it's, it's, they, they go to it a little too quick when they're looking to bury something. And, and he was clearly, for whatever reason, looking to bury this thing. Maybe he had somewhere to be and didn't realize it was going to be almost four hours. Uh, you know, 
maybe the intermission went a little long. I, I don't, you know, Bosley was having a bad day. Yeah. I, you know, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a tough beat and uh poor Bosley Crowther. I don't know. I don't know what was going on with him. Um, but, but yeah, yeah. but so I, I couldn't not do it. I mean, obviously most yeah. reviews both of the time and, and, uh, since then are, are just, are, are glowing. So, um, so yeah. Um, wow. So we're, we're chugging along here. Uh, Hey, Kieran, do you like lists? I love lists, and I've uh, since the last time here, I've grown a little fonder of lamp. Good, as well, good. So, I I still yes. love lamp. I still love lamp. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um. So I kind of stepped on yours. Um. So if you if you want to start off with your list, that would be great. Sure. I mean, mine is uh, is is real basic, but it's I feel it's important because when you get to the to this type of mountain, you know, you got to analyze what's there, and and it is the AFI top 100 list i went with the second one that the 2007 is that right yes i believe so yeah yes yeah so it, it got knocked down a couple slots from five to to uh to seven but here's the top 10 movies of all time voted voted on by the american film institute so just want to throw it out there let me know if, if these are yours uh, that you'd have up there too and there are a few 1001 by one episodes on here as well yep so. Uh, number ten is one of those, and that is the Wizard of Oz. It's so tough. I mean, it's it's so iconic. I mean, it wouldn't make mine, but I also think that this is a list of of the ten possibly most influential films as well, and it certainly is one of those. Yeah, I think I'm with you too. It's just it wouldn't be the first place I go, but it's not wrong. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't call it wrong. Yeah, you know. But uh, number nine was a first watch this year for me, and that was Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Oh man, we we that's another episode we did. Uh, Vertigo was my my favorite Hitchcock film until we did another episode of the show, uh, North by Northwest, which knocked it off that mm-hmm. perch. Uh, which is. Vertigo is, I think, still my number two. Um, but uh, I, I mean, Vertigo is great. Vertigo is is fantastic, and and we talked about we talked about um, uh, his his three film run. I think it was Rear Window, Psycho, and Vertigo. And I mean, Jesus Christ! I mean, that's that's pretty fucking good. So yeah, yeah. And I checked out one of his early ones recently, uh, Thirty Nine Steps, which yeah. I believe is in the book as well. Whoa, do I recommend that one too? That's yes. uh, a, a really beautiful looking film. Uh, from his early work. Uh, number eight is Schindler's List. Yeah, that movie still bowls me over, and I, I have actually seen it a few times. Um, and it's, it's it's I mean, talk about a hard movie to watch, but a very important movie to watch, and uh, I think I think worthy of of being up there. Yeah, for sure, and and a, a great a great representation of Spielberg in in what's an unbelievable filmography he has, for sure, for sure. Uh, number seven, Lawrence Arabia is one of the reasons we're here. Number six is Gone with the Wind. You mentioned there briefly. You, I guess you uh, scooped those two movies up for the first time back in college. Yeah, I, I mean, I just, I, I, I'll be real. I'll just be real with you. I just don't care about this movie at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's again, it's another one where I get it why people don't don't love it. I wouldn't have it ahead of Lawrence Arabia in any world myself, but sure. I, I understand why it's on a list like this. Singing in the Rain is number five. That's a one you have an episode on. Um, yes. Uh, and and oh, what did I just listen to of yours? Uh, you sp- fuck what? You spend a decent amount of time on one of your episodes talking about it. Probably the artist. Yes, that yes, is yeah. correct. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, Singing in the Rain is is just phenomenal. And and uh, as a as a movement 
an acting teacher. I dig it. My wife, who used to do a lot of musical theater as a choreographer, digs it. It's not uh, as long as West Side Story, which is a movie that I like. My wife loves. Um, so this this checks off a lot of boxes for me. It's it's a fun watch. Yeah, I'm with you too. It just really, really visually and and just aesthetically pleasing movie for sure. Uh, I, I'm I'm all over it, and that, and that kind of was like right after. Gene Kelly's American in Paris. It was bang, bang, year after year. And I think the reason it didn't get rewarded as much as it should have during that time was because everyone was just, they got done kissing American in Paris's ass. And now they're yep. like, oh, Gene Kelly's back with his tap shoes again. And here yeah. we go. We but they did, you know, didn't have the foresight. We talked that. about that. that. Was the one. We talked about it on the Singing in the Rain episode. We also talked about something similar on our, uh, our Deer Hunter episode and our Apocalypse Now episodes because part of me thinks the reason why Apocalypse Now didn't win in 79 and lost to Kramer versus Kramer is that we just had gotten a Vietnam story the year before with the deer hunter. So I, I don't know, but I, I had similar vibes. Yeah. And the apocalypse now episode's a great episode. I actually listened to that this week in preparation for this. Cause I hadn't heard that one was uh, really appreciating the, the banter in that one. <laughs> and uh, number three, I'm sorry. Number four is, is a, is a hot button 1001 by one episode. That's raging bull, <laughs> which is, yeah, a great episode that you guys have there. Really great back and forth debate. I will just I will just refer people to the episode if you would like to know my thoughts on Raging Bull. <laughs> That's right, and that was that was one in listening to that. Like it was one where you guys were both disagreeing with each other, and I was agreeing with you both. You know, like <laughs> I, I understood why Ian liked it. I understood why you didn't like it. But I'm like right, right there in the middle. Yeah, as a, a swing voter there, and. Uh, Number three was Casablanca. One you guys have, have not tackled. We have not tackled yet either. Oh, I, I love it. Love it, love it, love it. Very good. Yeah, but it's another one you don't often hear anyone say negative, anything negative about that yeah. at all. Yeah. Number two is a movie that we just got done climbing the mountain of, and that is The Godfather in 1972. Yep, good episode. And. Thank you. We had a lot of fun with that one, with that and, and Godfather 2. And then number one is Citizen Kane, which is the other one you picked up when you when you saw. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 totally did the the film dorky thing and watched it the night before Mank was released so I could be in the world of Mank when that came out. So I could so I could be utterly disappointed with Mank uh, because that was just <laughs> what happened with Mank. Um, but yeah, yeah. Citizen Kane's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So there it goes. Those are the top 10. I don't think anything on there is so glaring that you'd be like, how is this on there? So no, they I, did a nice enough job of narrowing down the 10. I think at some point in the future, Gone with the Wind will fall just based on where it is in the cultural zeitgeist right now. But it is what Probably. it is. Probably. Um, so uh, I'm going to blaze through. So I, I I had two lists, but we're, we're pretty far into this, and I just want to get through one of them. So uh, one of my favorite uh, YouTube channels called Cinefix did the top five historical epics of all time. Um, and they usually try to give you a wide scope of things. So number five uh, was Red Cliff parts one and two. It's actually um, um, uh, Chinese films from John Woo, uh, which are um, I haven't seen, but they look gorgeous from what I've seen on the on the clips. Uh, number four is Ran, uh, the Kurosawa film, uh, which is sort of a, a loose adaptation of King Lear. Uh, just just in case you're wondering, uh, uh, it's ties to King Lear. Very thin very thin okay as somebody who who did their thesis role in king lear in grad school uh, and watched rand thinking he might he might glean something from it not much not much at all um number three is war and peace the uh the russian one 
Uh, number two, Lawrence of Arabia. And number one, uh, Apocalypse Now, which I guess is historical. It's hard. I, I think of it as a war film rather than a historical epic, but that's that. But I'm going to push that list to the side because that's not the list. This is The list list is going to get to another talking point that I wanted to get to. So um, the AFI did a bunch of other top 10 lists of different things. And one of those lists were the top 10 heroes. The AFI defined a hero as a character who prevails in extreme circumstances and dramatizes a sense of morality, courage, and purpose. Though they may be ambiguous or flawed, they, they often sacrifice themselves to show humanity at its best. So that was their little blurb about what makes this list. Uh, number 10, and again, the reason why we're talking about it, would be Lawrence from Lawrence of Arabia. Number nine, George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. How do you feel about? Okay, yeah, pretty. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, it's you know, likable, likable character. Exactly. Uh, number eight is Ripley from Aliens, the second one specifically. Okay, she, she kicks ass. I'm a ass. big Alien. I'm an Alien one guy, but yeah. but uh, yeah, yeah. So, so we got her. She saves Newt. That's a thing that happens in it. Uh, number seven, uh, and an episode that you've done, uh, Rocky from Rocky. Oh yeah. Yep. Uh, number six. Seven seems low. Seven seems low, but sure. we'll, find, we'll find out what's ahead of him. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, number six, Clarice Starling from Silence of the Lambs, another BBC episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Uh, number five, in a movie I uh, only saw for the first time maybe about a year and a half ago, uh, Marshall Will Kane from High Noon. Have you seen High Noon? I have seen High Noon, and I know that Gary Cooper gets a ton of grief on uh, social media. Like, Twitter seems to hate him. I guess this goes on in 2021, you know, Twitter attacks people who've been dead for decades, but um, yeah, it, uh, it's a really good movie and, and just a, a lovely runtime. It's like, it's like not even 90 minutes. I it's, think it's like 75 minutes or so. It's a great ticking clock movie. It's I, I love it. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Um, number four. Uh, we just talked about this movie, Rick Blaine from Casablanca. Absolutely. Who, who, Again, who, just to, I think he I think he registers on the flawed level as they talked about, but does sacrifice in the end and, and does what he needs to do. Uh, number three and two are very iconic. Uh, we got James Bond, specifically uh, Sean Connery from Dr. No. OK. Uh, and uh, number two is Indiana Jones, specifically from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Can you guess who number one is? I mean, I, I'm going to have to guess it's like Luke Skywalker or something. No, no. Number one. And a great talking point that we're finally circling back to was Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, wow. A book and the list. <laughs> so so I think this is the last this is the last big thing I have before we we actually start talking about specifics in the movie, but this is related. This is related to something that I wanted to talk about, which you mentioned on our Roman holiday episode. You had a brief line in passing that made the cut. It's in the episode where you go. It is in there. Gregory Peck is walking around with Peter O'Toole's Oscar, which was great. I'm pretty mm -hmm. I'm also pretty sure I have a hell of a reaction in the episode because I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> but I also I also thought about it in prepping for this one in terms of thinking, okay. Is is it as is it as egregious as 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 Karen made it out to be? And so again, in terms of rewatching shit this week, I rewatched To Kill a Mockingbird. And not only should Gregory Peck have not have won, um, that movie has aged terribly. And I and not for the mm. obvious, you know, it's dealing with race thing. 
it is just not a very it's not a well-made movie um if we want to talk i mean i i know that it's based off of a very uh a much heralded book but um Talk about an overwritten. If we're going to use the word overwritten, um, that one is. And Ian and I got in, got into this debate a lot uh, with with acting and stuff. And so uh, the audience won't see what this visual I'm about to do. But as an acting teacher, this is so. Um, Atticus, Atticus Finch stands for something big, but in terms of his um, emotional through line, he never really wavers. He's uh, he's a constant throughout, right? Which is fine, but it's it's he's the same entirely through. Lawrence has some big fucking arcs and, and I'm biased, but as I'm watching a performance, I want to see characters go up and down. I want to see them go through big emotional peaks and valleys. That's what makes it interesting. Um, and even when he's not, even when he's just being kind of smarmy, vapid Lawrence, it's still really interesting. And, and uh, so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm here to agree with your take that that Peter O'Toole is is one Oscar shy of what he should have. Yeah, I I love hearing it. I love hearing it. And you know, I, I do I do like to like sometimes imagine Gregory Peck actually walking around the streets holding <laughs> the Oscar. You know, uh, but yeah, and and listen, when you talk about the, the the staying right down the middle, I mean, they found the perfect guy for it in Gregory Peck because that's what he does. I mean, he's he's a down the middle type of type of guy, and I don't want to crush them too much, but. It is also just like such a safe role and such a safe performance. Everyone knows the source material. It's it's just a script stage play right there for him to to hop on. It is no one is going to bat an eye at it at that time. Whereas you have a, a basically a first time to film actor in Peter O'Toole. Yep, out in the Jordan Desert. Dealing with with David Lean and every demand that David Lean has in what's essentially his film debut. Yeah. Yep. And he's required to be on screen predominantly for the entirety of this four hour movie. And and the emotions, the waves of emotion he has to bring in here. It's just it you wish that the Academy would have had the foresight to not just be like, Okay, this is a rookie actor who gave this big grand performance. He'll be back, whatever. That no, no, this is a movie that's going to be regarded as one of the greatest works of all time, and and you should be able to see that. But you know, we we could go on to a longer discussion of why they have difficulty doing that over the course of the last century. But yeah, that that one has always kind of been tough for me, and I know that people people love To Kill a Mockingbird and. I haven't revisited it myself in a long time, so it's interesting to hear those thoughts on it. But, I mean, it's yeah, that that one should have gone to Peter. It's so, and I get yes, and I get the importance of the film and and what it means. But again, I feel like a movie that's trying to tackle something like that in a much more in a much more interesting way is Twelve Angry Men. And while it's not explicitly about race, which To Kill a Mockingbird is. 12 angry men and kind of tip, tip, tiptoes around it. But I think that's what makes it more uh, lasting. Um, and the other thing about the other thing about To Kill a Mockingbird. Sorry, we're, gonna, I don't, we're talking about Lawrence of Arabia. But the other thing about To Kill a Mockingbird is that it's only kind of about that trial in a very real way. The movie is also it's like this coming of age tale about Scout and and the brother whose name I'm skipping. I'm blanking on right now. And like the stuff with them just walking around town is not very interesting. And to to because and that's the thing too Gregory Peck is maybe in sixty five percent of To Kill a Mockingbird because it's really Scout's story. 
it, mm. I, I, it just it's just so bad. And I'm looking at, and I another movie that I watched um over the last couple of weeks was uh My Favorite Year, which was another uh Peter O'Toole nominated film, um, which he's great in. The movie's only okay, but he is if you want to see Peter O'Toole do something not what you would think of Peter O'Toole, like not Lawrence, not Beckett, not the lion in winter. You want to see him be fun and weird and bumbling and drunk. <laughs> watch my favorite year. He gives, he's great in it. He's really good in that movie. Um, awesome. Okay. So I think, I think we're finally almost, almost an hour into the discussion here <laughs> to, to talk about the movie. Um, and uh, really in terms of the plot, you know, Lawrence is, well, I, I, I'm gonna, I, I don't want to bleed too much of the actual Lawrence into this, but Lawrence uh, is um, in the, the British Army. It's during World War I. Um, we obviously, the movie starts with his death, but in terms of chronologically, uh, he's in the army. He's very much in the maps and stuff, and he wants to be involved in the Middle East. Eventually, he gets reassigned to go and basically be next to Prince Faisal and to uh, not get involved, but but be near. Um, he kind of oversteps his bounds a few times, but he shows initiative. He takes big risks, and in doing so, he uh, overtakes Aqaba, which, of course, I've skipped a whole bunch, but I'm doing that on purpose. And... Um, finds a love of the people and a love of the land, but then through making some really tough decisions at times and going through some really arduous moments, it is confused about almost whose side he's on. And again, this question of who are you? Um, eventually uh, he gets sent home and uh, the end of the movie comes full circle. Now I just wanted to get through that because there is, there is so much to fucking talk about. Um, so wow. uh, where, what's the, like when you think of Lawrence of Arabia, what is like the first thing that jumps out to you? Yeah, sure. And, and, you know, I don't want to overstate the, the, the fact that how, you know, excited and, and honored I am to be here, because I think there was an episode where you and Ian had, had brought up Lawrence and you didn't bring it up for, for long, but I don't remember what episode it was, but there, you could hear the joy in Ian's voice about, well, when we get there, you know, when we get to the Lawrence episode, you know, well, we can discuss that and that'll be great. And, I just remember thinking, oh, God, man, when are they going to get there? I want to hear that episode right now. So the fact that I'm here on it, you know, it is, you know, uh, it it's an honor. It's an honor to be talking about it. With, to answer your, your question specifically, when when someone asks me what my favorite movie is, my favorite movie is Shawshank Redemption. That's I, I answer that very quickly for a number of reasons. But when they ask me what I think the greatest movie ever made was, the first place I go is Lawrence of Arabia. And the reason I say that is is just that every element of movie making that you could that you could wish for, want for, put on the table and ask of a movie is done. And it's not just done, it's done at it with with Hall of Fame accuracy in, in this one. And listen, there are chamber pieces where it's all about the dialogue and you don't need the, the grand scope and all that. But this one does everything you might possibly need, and it does it all well. From this, from the editing to the screenplay to the sound to the cinematography to to the set pieces, the directing, the acting. There is no missed beat to this movie, and I, I just think it checks off every box that there is to be checked. So that's why I would go here first when someone asked me what I thought the greatest movie ever was. So um, I did this bit once before on uh, last year to end out our season. We did a decade by decade celebration of film and when we got to we started in 1920 and we went 
uh, decade uh, at a time. And then when we got to 1970, we did five easy pieces. And on five easy pieces, I made this dumb. I was like, hey, I have I want to talk about these five famous set pieces from the movie. And that was what I did. Um, so part of the um, material that was adapted to make this was from his book, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. So I had this thing, seven things I have to talk about on the episode. Now we've already right. we've already knocked off two of them. That was uh, my my piss poor initial viewing experience of this movie and uh, Peter O'Toole versus Gregory Peck. So the third thing I'd like to get to because I I think this is one of the things. If somebody were to ask me about the movie, I think my my not my hot take, but my first thing that I would say is that I think that the cinematography, which is phenomenal overshadows what I think might be its best technical accomplishment, which is the editing. Now, I don't just mean the blowing out the match into the sun of the desert, which is which is amazing and is actually going to make a list on an upcoming episode, but I with so many oh. lists. Okay, I mean, we love lists, but we so we got to stop. Um but um, I, I watched a couple of the featurettes on the on the Blu-ray and um, listening to Anne V. Coates talk about how much she was influenced from like the French New Wave and not only in the terms of, of these hard cuts, but this idea of and, and it happens a few times in the movie where you start to hear the sound of the mm. next scene before we get there. And I think I think the earliest one we hear is the sound of the people walking in St. Paul's Cathedral before we actually see his um, his his statue there. And it happens again and again and again throughout the movie. And again, uh, uh, F.A. Young's cinematography is, is fucking, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. And, I, and I, I honestly did not appreciate it until this watch, watching it on a good TV on 4K. But I think that the editing is the thing that really holds this mammoth long movie together. Oh, absolutely. And you'll hear it also with the train. I think there's a couple shots of him and then you hear the train coming and then you'll see the train. It, it And there's a, there's an important thing to remember here, too. Is that David Lean is an editor first. He broke in as an editor. Yeah. And his so he's I believe he was the editor on about six or so movies before he started directing. And he edited his first two or three movies before he, he moved on to get a sauce. And he actually edited his final movie, Passage to India, as well, and got the Oscar nomination for that, too. So many think that his greatness as a director comes from his ability to look at it as an editor. And and there's in, in talking about Lawrence Rebe, he even said himself that he would view scenes and view how they started and how they ended, and that's how he would implement his actions and his cuts. So... You know, and and while and while uh, Ann Coates did a, did a tremendous job putting it together, and she won the Oscar for it, it it is it is all about the David Lean vision to start and and approaching this as a an editor's director. Oh, oh, for sure. Um, so I, I I I and you said that you reminded me that he was an editor. It it made me remember that in part of the research I saw that um in one of the earlier showings. Uh, one of the reels was flipped and everything that was supposed to be left to right was right to left and it didn't get noticed for a while. So in some of the initial releases of the film, it was that way. And it wasn't until later when they were doing the restoration, they noticed that. And I got, I have to imagine that of the, of, I'm sure of the many things that Lean beat himself up on over the years, not catching that sooner has to be something that he just like, it probably kept him up at night 
just thinking about how the fuck did I not flick get that flip the right way? <laughs> um, sorry, that's I just that that's definitely something that I, I had to bring up. Um, but yeah, that and the thing about and and this movie has a lot of great subtle um, plants that get paid off later on in the movie, and um, one of them is just earlier when he's when he when he lights the match the first time we see him around the map. And um, he lets it kind of burn out on his finger, and you know what they call that. You know, the it, the, the the whole purpose is, is that it, you you don't mind that it hurts. And so when we have that scene after, basically after he's been reassigned to Dryden, and then he's going to go out there, he said it it'll be fun. And um, Claude Rains is like, you have a weird sense of fun. He's like, no, no, Dryden, it'll be fun. And we see the match out there. We're expecting that it's he's going to let it burn out. And then it's it's not just the cut, but it's the sh- it's the surprise that he blows it out, and just how well that works. And you know, you know, a movie is either going to be really bad or really good when you can talk about the editing in such esteem. It's either like most movies yes, suck, so yes. all I have is the editing to talk about, or it's just it just adds to it. And and it's also it's it's such a great moment of the editing giving way to how great the cinematography is because and the score. Mm. We haven't talked about Morjar yet. Um, but uh, when the sun's kind of rising, 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 and the, the score is just kind of humming underneath it until the sun is up and we get that big Lawrence theme, I mean, that is like that is quintessential epic movie making in that moment. Yeah, and, and the blowing of the match, not to just leave, to, to, you said it perfectly, but I just want to just point out too, it's, it's not just the passage of time, but the passage of, of distance too yes. and, and location. And to do that with just a, I mean, who would think of that without seeing it? You know, it takes, it takes a genius mind to think of something like that. Yeah. And to, to just, or to just, now we're going to transplant you in another time and place and uh, just, just genius stuff. Oh, for sure. Now uh, that kind of gets us into um, uh, Lawrence being in the desert and having the guide. And I know you, uh, you were referencing the scene at the, the well, right. With, uh, mm-hmm. with Lawrence. And then when, when, uh, Ali comes into play. So I, I wanted to give you yes. a little, a little, little room to talk about, to talk about that scene. Sure. I mean, I think it's my opinion, one of the greatest entrances of a character that you'll ever see. And it's done in that, uh, that it's done in a long take. It's not, they do cut to the, they do cut a few times to the reactions of, of Lawrence and the guy, yes. but it is filmed in one long take. And that's into the, into the mirage and capturing the desert mirage and Sharif Ali just gradually appearing and then getting closer and closer. And that, that, that long landscape that you see and him getting closer and closer and, and then, and then the reactions and then the run to the gun and then the, the exchange that they have at the well afterwards, just, I mean, that to me, the first time I saw this movie, that was the scene I kept going back to in my head as to, Whoa, this is, this is why this movie is considered as great as it is. Yeah. Um, and it's it's great too because the the way in which that uh, Lawrence and Ali interact in that scene is such a great plant for when we get that little kind of surprise entrance of of Ali in the tent uh, with Faisal, where now now he's there and Lawrence kind of has that moment of ah oh, fuck it's that guy it's the guy I had that yeah. running with earlier. Uh, Ooh, this is awkward. Which is great, and it's and it's it. This movie also has some some moments of levity too, which is which is which is great because you need it. It's long, and and if it was just all the heavy stuff, um, it would be too much. I mean, we get it, and I, I it's unfortunate because we get most of it at the beginning, especially when it's like it, it's my manasa. 
my mana. Yes. I'm not. It seems like I'm insubordinate, but I'm really not. Oh, it's so great. That's it's great. Um, you're a clown. You're a clown, Lawrence. Well, we all, we can't all be lion tamers, you know. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, yeah. It's and it needs to be said too. Is like these guys are out there doing their own riding too. They're learning how to ride these camels. And and it. I was listening to Sharif Ali talk about uh, uh, about this. Uh, sorry, Omar Sharif. I was listening to Omar Sharif talk about this movie. And in those shots in the distance where it's supposed to be Lawrence and Sharif Ali, and you just see two camels in the distance, that's not two extras yeah. pretending to be. That is Peter O'Toole, and that is Omar Sharif. David Lean wanted them out there in the distance because they wanted them to feel isolating, to feel what the journey was with all that. And and you know that's something you just don't always think of when you watch movies. You see someone this is like, ah, it's probably some extra or whatever. It's like, no, no, that's actually the actors. That's the talent out there doing it. During a stampede, they rode that stampede. They didn't just have have stunt people in there for it. Well, and it, so this yes. is this is the worst. This is the worst thing I could ever reference on a, on an episode of Lawrence of Arabia. But uh, the other show I do with my wife, <laughs> Below Freezing, uh, we just recorded an episode, uh, which isn't going to come out for a while. But we just did Bad Boys Two, and um, oh boy. There are so many scenes, there are so many moments, so many bad edits where it is so plainly obvious that it is not Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. I mean, it's really bad. <laughs> it's really bad how many times throughout you can tell it's not them. And that's a but that's a great thing to bring up, not just in terms of the the recognition and the and that they did it, but like again, as an as an actor myself, like put me in there. I mean, I I I said this to Ian once, like my best experiences as an actor is when I don't get to go off stage when I'm constantly doing things I'm I'm more into the scene I'm listening more I'm interacting more with my with my with my scene uh, my scene partners and like I I give so much and 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 then on top of the fact that they're riding camels and they're in the middle of the fucking desert like you put all of that together and the dedication that these people had and and so when you hear that after most shoot dates they just got drunk uh, you go, well, sure, but also like, yeah, you fucking earned it. I mean, you really did. Yeah. And, and just the pressure of, I mean, as a stage actor, I mean, you guys have to have to get it, get it right the first time, every time, but in, in talking, listening to them talk about the sand and how they needed the sand to be pristine in these shots. So you couldn't retake shots in the same location that you just took them because there'd be, there'd be hoof prints all over the place. And you needed this just open, open desert where the sand is undisturbed. They talk about like oh, the, the concession stand paper cups will go flying yep. out and they're like, Oh, I got to go get that paper cup 20 feet away. But how we got to step out there to get it. Now we got to rake the sand. We got it's little things like that. You don't think of in, in how big of an undertaking it is. And unfortunately today, so much of it just gets checked off with just quick CGI or yeah. let's just green screen it. Uh, without a doubt, my unsung heroes of the film are all of the PAs, all of the crew that had to go out and fix the sand and get cups. Like, every, like, and that's the thing too, is like so many people are properly sung throughout the movie that it is all of those people doing the grunt work that actually, actually it's, it's those people and Lawrence's camel. Those are the unsung heroes <laughs> of this. I took one of my notes as I, uh, we, I, I'm, we're, I know we're all over the place, but when, when Lawrence goes back through the, the sun's anvil, because we've lost Gassim, um, uh, oh, what a scene. And, and we've already been told that like, 
if the camels die, we die. The camels aren't getting water until we get there. And then Lawrence turns around. I'm going, yeah, that's that's tough for Lawrence. But what about your fucking camel? And like when they come back, everybody's crazy. Lawrence, I'm like, somebody better fu- fucking clap for that camel because the camel carried two people back and also hasn't had any water. It should be Lawrence of Arabia or the story of a strong camel. That's the subtitle of this movie. Wow. And to just to just double on top of that and really emphasize your point. I don't know if you read this, but in the in the filming at one point during the charge scene, Lawrence fell. And he didn't get run over because his camel saved him. He stood over yes. him and protected him from the stampede. That cow, you're you're onto something with that. That camel really was the the true he should have been on the top ten heroes list. There. Fucking A. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, let's let's bring up. We're gonna go to one of the uh, another another one of the seven things I want to talk about because I know you've mentioned this uh, specifically. I know on your your Argo episode and your Braveheart episode, and that is this idea of historical accuracy. Um, now, now this is uh, both in terms of like they. Some of the characters are compilations of a lot of characters. Others, like uh, Abu Dai, and um, I want to get the name right. So let me let me let me let me look at this first. Uh, General Allenby were like rural people whose families weren't necessarily thrilled with the way that their characters were represented on screen. Um, and then there's the fact that you know part of this is based off of Lawrence's book. In which case, obviously, if you're writing your own history, you're going to make yourself sound good. But then also, and this is also kind of another thing that leads with that, is this whole idea of Lawrence's sexuality and uh, Mm -hmm. unconfirmed reports that he might have been gay um, and who who the book was made out to and how that person may or may not have been somebody in his life. Um, So, you know, does, in a movie like this, I mean, you know, Braveheart, Argo aside, and, and all the other films too, like for this movie specifically, how much of the historical accuracy accuracy thing is a is an issue or non-issue for you yeah and and my stance on these is always if your goal is to deliver themes and to live deliver substance within your story then don't let the facts get in the way of that good story and robert bolt made a decision here not only with forget about the, the people's personal lives but with the history of the actual war, and one of my one of the things that I remembered after my first viewing was, wow, what a cool story, what a what a great character, what a complicated character, what an interesting narrative. But I don't know shit about World War One. Like I don't I don't have no idea what they're fighting over or what this is about. I yeah. gotta like get a history book. I'm like totally ignorant and stuff. And then I did a little looking into it, and the original script of this was way closer to a historical retelling of the conflict between the Turkish army, the Germans, the British, the, the, um, the Saudi Arabian army and, and all the factions and all the intertwined. And then they just, Whoa, 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 this is, this is way too confusing for a three hour, three hour plus movie. Let's make this character driven. And Robert Bolt came in and made that decision to make this a character driven movie. And he is my unsung hero is Robert Bolt in this. He's one of the one of the Oscars that they didn't win. They won seven of the ten. He was the adaptation was that lost to Gil Mockingbird. Yeah. But it, which uh, that probably wasn't going to end up any other way. That's the famous <laughs> book. That's going to go that way. So that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll give that one. But to make that decision to not get bogged down by the history of the war and the struggle between all these different factions in an, in in a struggle where the factions were probably all confused themselves as to who they were fighting. 
Yeah. To make this a character-driven story was what makes this a movie we're talking about today. And while it probably, just based on the technical achievements of it, is probably in something like a book of 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die, I don't know if it's on the list of top 10 best movies ever made. And I think the complications of the, really what amounts to a bit of a fictional character on screen, and it is based on, on the writings of the real person and people call his writings fictional. Yeah. <laughs> and it is his depiction yeah, exactly. of it. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so it... It, so to, 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 answer, to answer the question simply is, I don't need General Allenby's life story in every movie that I see. It's, it's not important to me. I'm sorry to upset his family. That stinks. You guys talked about this on your on your Elephant Man episode about the 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 heel in the Elephant Man actually was like the guy's mentor. Yeah. You know, that sucks a little bit when you when you actually were a hero and you get made a villain. Yeah. But David Lynch has to create a story worth telling and a narrative that's going to be interesting on the screen. And people aren't necessarily going to the movies to watch David Lynch do a biopic on the elephant man. You know, they want, they want an aesthetic story and that's, that's what that is. That's what this is. So, yeah, I, I just know, and there were, there were two in doing the research and Jesus Christ, there's a lot of research on this. Um, the, oh, yeah. the two things that came to mind, the, the first brief one was like the the height difference that Peter O'Toole is a very tall oh. man and that the real Lawrence was short. Like and like, cool, great. I I don't give a shit. Um, but the other, but, but there was something that I was uh, I found out about the real Lawrence, just how much of an, an adventurer he was when he was a kid. Um, that he was like when he was like thirteen or fourteen, he like took a bike and toured all of all of like the castles in England. And then when he was seventeen, he toured all of the castles in Europe. And then decided that he wanted to go to the Middle East and tour like the castles around like like modern day Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia. And was told like, well, you can't do that on your own. He's like, no, 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 I'm gonna do it on my own. And so um, there was a bunch of really cool shit that I found out after the fact, like. Lawrence was never really in the army. He kind of tricked his way into the army because he was essentially an expert on the area, but they wouldn't get him in the army uh, because because the real Lawrence was too short. So basically, there's a whole lot to go, but he basically tricked himself in as an aide because he knew the region more. Now, I will say that the movie doesn't really give us a lot of information in terms of how he just is able to all of a sudden be with Dryden and, and get out there, um, which doesn't really bug me that much. But that was one of those cool things where, like, after the fact, doing a little bit of reading and going, oh, the real Lawrence really knew his shit. And that, like, when he's quoting the Quran in the movie and, like, giving this information to Faisal, it's like, it's not just an arrogant man giving it. Yes, he is an arrogant man, but it's an arrogant man who knows his stuff. And that's a different thing. And so if if you can if you can trust inherently without knowing that information that Lawrence knows the region... I think it fixes one of Bosley Crowther's problem, which is that we don't know a lot about Lawrence and maybe we don't, but it, it is out there. Well, I, you know, then I want to pose the question too, is, is the, what is the goal of this movie? Is this, is the goal of Lawrence Arabia to educate the viewers on the life of T.E. Lawrence, or is it to, to deliver a character study of, of a, and, and, and deliver themes. And to me, one of the main themes of this movie is not just identity as we brought it before, but the characteristics of leadership and what it takes to be a leader. And one of the main points that they drive home in this movie is that in order to lead people, particularly people who are undermanned, uh, do not have the proper technology and are, are in terrible positions to succeed, 
you have to convince them that they are doing what they are, that they are going to do what they are physically incapable of doing. And that's what, that's what it, 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 you'll see it throughout military all the time. It's about sports all the time. It's whether it's the 300 at the Thermopylae or it's the New York Giants beating the undefeated Patriots in the Super Bowl. Woo. Uh, it, it is, th- this movie drives home and, and there's this scene where they're, you know, it, it's a whole, it, it, nothing is written, nothing is written. And there's the scene later on after they've already, they've taken, they've gone through the sun's anvil and which everyone said was impossible. And they've, they've, uh, taken the, taken the, um, Aqaba, they've yes. taken Aqaba. But later on, there's a scene with Omar Sharif and, and Lawrence in the cave. And he goes, you know, you got these guys thinking th- that you're some kind of prophet or you're going to, you know, that, that they can do things that they can't do. And Lawrence goes, that's absolutely right. Who are you to say what can be done? Who are you to say what can be done? And then he goes out and says, who will walk on water with me? Now, that's at the point where his egotism has reached a state of, of it, we're, we're now in Icarus mode here. And yeah. that's when he's going to now crash when he gets into He goes in and literally thinks that he can, as, a, as an Englishman, can walk into, into a Turkish town and no one will notice that he's white because that's how convinced he is that he can do this mission. That's so much more interesting to me than going through T.E. Lawrence's background and him being employed as a spy and him spending years in a camp. Like, are you, are you, is this a biopic or is this a character study? And uh, I, I just, I'll just fight the end of it all the time is give, deliver me themes, deliver me characters, deliver me story. Yeah, no, uh, hard to argue that. And uh, again, I think for the people out there who are seeking that information, there's, there's plenty of places to find it. And I, all I think I, I, all that additional research I think does for like for me. Um, and, and then again, I'm, I totally dig movies and I, I like doing this kind of stuff is that, it gives you more context. So whether or not it's historically accurate or not, it's fun to kind of see, oh, here's what they changed. Oh, they, they did that. It doesn't make me underappreciate or go like, oh, they really screwed that up. It's just like, oh, I get it. You know, like T. Lawrence knew his shit. That's part of the reason why he was in the Middle East. Cool. I don't necessarily need the movie to tell me that because you're right. Because it is about this guy's journey to try to essentially try to find who he is. And I think, you know, all we need, like, we just need little bits. We need that little bit with uh, Ali, where he's like, "What was your father's name?" Oh, it's Chapman. Oh, you'll 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 become a sir too. No, he wasn't married to my mother. We we only need like ninety seconds of dialogue to get a lot of like ah strained relationship with dad, unsure of who he is. Okay, we get it. He's got something to prove, but to who? Who are you? Who are you proving it to? Exactly, exactly. We don't need we don't need to see him. We don't need to see him have a like a, an argument with his dad when he's ten. You know, we just we just get it. Yeah. And for anyone who who likes the movie and, and is also confused by the history of it, 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 it is interested by it. I you can go to YouTube. History Buffs does a, a thing on Lawrence of Arabia and it's very pro Lawrence of Arabia, too. So they're not like nitpicking the height and saying, well, they did this and they yeah. did that. They go through the facts and what they got wrong, but they do it in a very positive light. And it's just interesting to hear about the train line and what the Germans were trying to accomplish through Turkey and, and why uh, why Aqaba was so important. Uh, to getting to Damascus and and why all of that why all of that more because the movie doesn't do intentionally doesn't focus on on the whys as far as the military tactics go yeah. it's more as as the hows and 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 the whats yeah yeah um so yeah cool I mean just just chugging along uh uh so like what's the what's the next thing that you like 
if I was to say this was the last thing you could say you could say about Lawrence of Arabia, what's the like what's the another thing that you have to get out? Okay, I, I do because we brought up we've brought up identity a few times here, and then you mentioned a little bit about his father too, and I I, I don't want to just totally brush over why that's important. That's kind of probably the most the most apparent theme in it because there are times where they literally ask, "Who are you, Lawrence? Who are you?" And he goes, "I don't know." And we have the guy screaming across the bank, "Who are you?" You know, so that's the yeah. little more the the overt uh, in your face themes with it. But there's one little moment here where if if just in a casual watch you you might miss, but they're they're in the tent. They're discussing about about taking Aqaba and why the British are not interested in storming the, the seas. All their, all their guns are pointed at the water. The British Navy has better things to do than to just take on this, these, those guns for no reason. And Lawrence kind of explains to Faisal and, and, and the, the British officer that the British have such control because they're in charge of the water. They go where they want, therefore they can make what they do. That's their power. But... The, the Bedou have the desert and that you can you can build your own British Navy in the desert and use the desert as your ocean and as your water, as your way to get where you need to go. And that's when he eventually comes up on going through the sun's anvil, attacking, attacking Aqaba, where, where the, the guns are facing the wrong way and they can storm yeah. and take that. Aqaba by the this, land. Yeah, that's right. And, and there's a great moment there where you finally see the water in this movie and we've seen so much sand we you know we, we saw the we saw england from the indoors in the beginning but now we've seen all the sand and landscapes to 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 for him to accomplish getting getting akiba and then seeing that water and that shot of the ocean and he's lawrence is riding his camel and he walks up onto the waves and the camel's walking along the waves so he's half in the sand and half in the water and he, he gradually walks in toward the world. So it, it you know, just it's simplifying his the the piece of him that is now part of the desert and the piece of him that was that was British before that and where he lies somewhere in between is a very cool part at almost the halfway part of the movie. That's one of the things that this I picked out this time around that I was just uh, really blown away by. It's just a, a, a really amazing scene. Yeah, no, it is. And the way that it and it's so funny because I feel like there are moments where he's he's like not seeking praise or or like acknowledging that he did something great. Like when he when he goes back for Gassim, right? You know, nothing is written, refuses to take water until he until it's Sheriff Ali who gives it to him and it's it's a great little moment, right? But then there's the moment where Ali gives him the garlands and it's like it's 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 customary to throw them into the water, but then he hops off of the camel to grab them. Like as it like wanting to hold on to the accomplishment. Mm. But then he so quickly abandons that to go back to Cairo. Um, and, and obviously we have everything that happens uh, on the way there. We lose, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I forget if it's Farage or Dayud who, who gets pulled down. Yeah. Um, the but, quicksand, yeah. but that happens. Um, and it, this, and, and, and then we get to the, what another lovely, lovely shot where we see the big hill of sand and then the ship going by. And it's this weird, you're trying to make this image work of your head of a ship going through what looks like sand, another fucking brilliant shot. Um, but when they get back to Cairo, uh, I think like the next like 10 to 15 minutes before we hit intermission, like those 15 minutes alone should have gotten Peter O'Toole the Oscar. Uh, yeah. The way that he is stubborn and adamant uh, when he's in the officer's lounge, um, 
the way that he says he doesn't want to go back. Uh, I mean, he's, he is putting on a clinic and, um, I remember thinking too, um, he, essentially when it feels like he's being tricked by Allenby to basically go back the, the eye acting that he's doing. And I, I hate saying eye acting, but it's the easiest way to describe it. But what, what's actually happening, what good actors do is they're not just hearing their, their, their scene mates say lines. They're, they're, they're hearing every word and thinking about it. Right. And it's, and you're seeing him actively think about everything that's being said to him. And then you're seeing him also react internally. So all of the, the thinking that's happening in, in those moments, I don't want to say eye acting because it makes it sound like he's just looking around, like the active right. listening and thinking that is happening when he's in um, Allenby's office is just like top notch. And then it's also so funny because then, the, and then again, like the, who are you? The quick switch that he's, I mean, then he flips right back to, okay, well, we're going to need all this stuff. And he gets it all. I was like, oh, okay. And then like after intermission, the next time we see him is him with this big fucking smile on his face because he's just blown this track off of the rails. <laughs> and it's like, it, it's, it's fascinating. And it's, I can't help again. I can't, my, my, my good friend, Ian, I love you, buddy. Like part of the reason why he loved, um, Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull was that he was this mystery. He was this guy who you would never fully understand why he did the things that he did. But he also never changed. LaMotta never changed. And that was also an issue that I had. Lawrence, his changes are big and not always entirely motivated, but it's always interesting. And it's never, it's never like, I don't believe that. And watching him struggle through all of these choices is what I think makes O'Toole's performance just so everlasting yeah uh, very well said very well said and the, the the eye acting and he has a a, a pair of peepers that can do the, the eye acting too. he's got that <laughs> Those, yeah. he's got he's got a, a set of eyes on him it's uh you know it's one of those characters too that every time i watch the movie i learn a little more about and i i think a little differently about and that to me makes a great movie too. It's a movie that can be revisited and you can, you can alter your opinion on, on the characters and, and their journey. And I don't think it's as upfront. And like you said, a guy not changing, it's just, he's always this way. You wonder where the changes occur and how they occur and why they occur. And uh, I think it's why it's such a complicated and fascinating character to me. Well, and I remember I was, when I was watching it this week, I, when he it's he, he it's that moment where he's thinking it's it's like late at night and the two the two aides are kind of watching him and eventually he comes up with the idea Akaba from the land right and I wrote a note I said he this is when he's become Lawrence of Arabia to himself like I feel like th- like this is the idea this is the dawn of that for him and then when he's coming back from with Gassim and he's and like it well no it's not that moment it's. So he's proved himself there and then they've burned his clothes. Right. And then it's the next day he's in the yep. white and, and like everything kind of fits now. And he, he's, he asked if it's, if it's proper to bow back to the other men. And I was like, okay, now he's become Lawrence of Arabia to the men. And there's all of these moments where like more and more people accept that. And then we, and then we meet out Abu Dai and then we meet the, I, the, the Howitz and the, I, I'm going to get these names wrong. And this is like a standard thing mm-hmm. on a thousand one by one to just fuck up the pronunciations. <laughs> but, um, he, he, he keeps becoming Lawrence of Arabia to all of these people. And it, and it's these, and it's great. And he's really building the confidence. 
And then it's this weird moment where, where it's when he finally becomes Lawrence of Arabia to the British that it really starts to, to go downhill. And the more, the more and more people that accept him as Lawrence of Arabia, the more that that question of who are you gets more muddy. Um, and obviously it gets thrown into question. I think the most where he says no prisoners and it's just like this. Yeah. I, I mean, and I, I, we could talk a little bit about that too, because like I the the scene that they stumble upon is is fucking terrible. It's gruesome and it's awful. And of course, of course they 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 want to seek justice. And then I just remember writing is like it was like one group of people for another. And like and I go this like nothing's changed. And like and now it's like uh oh now that veneer of of you know quote unquote Lawrence of Arabia is it's starting to to go away. Yeah, there's some, I mean, there's some key moments there where he, I, I guess this is the time to talk about the Jose Ferrer uh, rape scene. Let's do that, that, that's kind of a big that was one of and, That was one of the seven things. It's a pillar. We're at a pillar. Yep. All right, we're at a pillar. Let's let's talk this one. Uh, wow, what a scene. And uh, Jose Ferrer has gone on to say that if, that if you wanted to, if you wanted to ask him what he thought is the best example of his acting was he, he goes to this even though he originally complained he was in the movie for such a short period of time went back and still thought it was his greatest work um there's something about that scene and it is the peak of lawrence's egomania and the peak of him just thinking he can literally walk on water and that and that whatever he wants to accomplish he will and the men will back him and he will do it and then he kind of comes to the spot where he's I mean, listen, I mean, it's not it's not done specifically in the movie, but it's enough is done in a time where they could not film a rape on screen. It, it, he's he's raped. And the 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 mechanism they use, the coughing from Jose Ferrer and the, it's so creepy and so unsettling and just so effective to, to really kind of just take this, take the, the viewer to a totally different place that they were leading up to this moment of the movie. Yeah, it's 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 the comp. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things going on, but but it's obviously the coughing in, in the in the in the crack of the door um, before that, like his hand getting really close to his nipple. I mean, that was it was just like right there. <laughs> and then the fucking smile on the guy's face who's holding his hands mm. and like it, this is one of the like. And and this movie had the budget. If they wanted to, like, and not not just for this scene, but like for everything. Like, if they wanted to film something, they probably could have. But like, one of the best cinematic devices that you can do is to infer and then not show or uh, tell, but don't show, or whatever the fuck you want to say. Like, like our imaginations do the work, and that's what makes it so much more like oh, like you don't even you don't even want to know specifically because your mind does it for you. And that's, it was just, I, it's such a weird thing to say for such a f- terrible moment, but like, that's brilliant filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, and it was, I mean, he's, he loses, he loses so much through that, through that, uh, that scenario there. And when he's now, he's essentially, he's like, all right, I'm out. That's it. I'm done. I'm done here. Uh, this is, this is re- really raped me of my, of my purpose here. And, he is now, you know, headed back and has the British clothes on again and is he's now convinced himself that he's just going to go back. Give me the transfer me. I'm just going to be an ordinary guy. I'm just going to be an ordinary guy. 
And that's when Allenby says to him, he goes, well, listen, you're, you're not an ordinary guy. Look at the papers. Look at this. And he has that that change in moment of what you brought this up before, where he he now realizes, OK, you know, um, all right, I am going to go back now. And now he's the guy screaming no prisoners because his 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 purpose as a leader has changed. His as earlier, earlier on, it was I can accomplish anything. I'm unstoppable. I'm, I'm going to convince the 300 to defend Thermopylae. No one is getting in my way. And then he experiences what he experiences with the Jose Ferrer character. And now he realizes he can't be an ordinary man anymore because of what he's built up to. So now his form of leadership that he's stepping into is this ruthless mercenary who is just stack me up with weapons, stack me up with vigilantes, these tribes that don't care about anything but the blood. And I'm going to take Damascus and I'm going to finish this job. But now the new Lawrence is going to do it. And it's boy, it's it's a turn. And and in this movie, as I said, at the, at the very dawn of this thing, it's a it's a two part movie, in in my opinion. And the first part is way more entertaining and and more of a fun adventure tale, where the second one is just more interesting as far as the depths that they get into with with the themes that they set up in the first. And boy, these bloody scenes really really hammer it home. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um... So we, we've kind of, we haven't really talked about uh, one of the actors in the movie and it, it leads to, you know, you know, hi- history is what it is and, and we can't really overshadow it. So the sixth of the seven things that I wanted to talk about was, um, figured this was coming up. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that's the brown face. That's, um, yeah. that's, uh, Alec Guinness, uh, playing Prince Faisal. Um, and you know, and obviously it, it's, it's, you know, it's 2021 and, and, uh, I think we're all way more cognizant of things like this, but it's just one of those things where like the fact that they weren't even thinking about casting an Arab actor to play uh, Ali. I mean, they think they were looking at uh, Alan Delon from like La Samurai and some of Mel- some of the Melville films, um, to be that part. And, you know, I mean, and obviously you can take, you can take, uh, some, some knocks against the film because it's Anthony Quinn playing Abu Abu Dai, uh, if you want to, and that's fine too. Um, or Jose Ferrar doing it as well. But like, it's so, I don't know. And it's not that I necessarily even have a big problem with Alec Guinness doing it. I just find it really interesting when we want to go, it's not cool in that film, but it's okay in this one. Cause like I, in doing a lot of the research and reading some, even some contemporary stuff about it, it doesn't really get uh, talked about all that much, but yet when you think about Olivier or um, or uh, uh, Wells doing like Othello, it's like no, 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 that that's bad. You can't do that. But to me, this is just as egregious, and I don't. It's just I find it's just interesting what films and what moments and what actors and what characters you are you can you can do it and when where you can't. Yeah. Um, so this is obviously super complicated and I'm going to tip, tiptoe as much as I can here because I, I don't, I'm not looking to, to take a, take a major side here on this topic because clearly the role should have been played by a, a Middle Eastern actor. I mean, and I think that obviously today it would have been, I will say though that, and, and, and we want to talk about, about, um, Quinn and Ferrer who are both people, at least they're people of color. So there, there is some, you know, it's not like they're white British actors playing sure. all of these roles. Yeah. 
And the movie did employ a tremendous number of Middle Eastern actors. So they had people from, you know, from Pakistan and Egypt and, and, uh, and, and all over. So there were, if, if this were a movie where we just have a bunch of British people walking around pretending to, to be uh Bedou, like that's, a, that's like real rough. It, it, it is, it's an unfortunate knock in this movie. I've had to, I've had to explain, not, not explain this, but ha I've had people come up to me before and say, well, what do you, what about Sir Al Guinness? It is, it, it's a shame also because it is such a good character and yeah. it's such a well-written character and important, uh, an important piece of the story. And, you know, I, I get, I, yes. It's it's a, it's a it's an unfortunate knock on the movie. I I'm not sure where else to go with it from there. Um, I mean, it, it is very much of its time. Yes, it's very much of oh, its time. Oh, for sure, for sure. And and again, this isn't going to excuse anything, but the only the closest thing that I can think of in terms of like I get it is like I I'm an actor and. I'd like to think that like, if you're going to give me a role, I can play it. You're going to give me this role. You got it. No problem. Um, I, I, I was in a show in grad school where I played two characters and the show was intentionally kind of absurd, but one of the characters I played was a four year old girl. Um, and it was ridiculous, but I, but I did it. I played it wholeheartedly and I became the character. And so if you're Alec Guinness, a classically trained, well-decorated actor, you probably aren't thinking about the repercussions of playing this role. You're going, you think I can play the role? You got it. I'm going to show you I can play the role. And then, yeah, and then when you when you do the little bit of research, like he tried to uh, do Omar, not do Omar Sharif, but like he used him as inspiration to build the character. You know, it's like, if, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it as, as, as well as I can. And so, yeah, this is a, you mean hindsight's 2020, of course, but I don't think that there's anything that's happening in the performance that's egregious. Um, I, I tangent, but I, I just, so uh, there's a book that I have some of my students read in class and, and we talk about stereotypes because um, as actors, it's what I, where I believe is that it's okay to start from a stereotype, whatever the stereotype might be, as long as, is what we do is you, you burn through it, right? Whereas you start from the stereotype, but then through rehearsal and characterization and your own research, the stereotype goes away and you've now become the character start from the stereotype, but then it, it drifts away. And so had this just been like Alec Guinness doing a, like a really bad, like a uh, Indian accent. That's no good. That's, that's no good at all. But yeah, him doing his best to emulate Omar Sharif and being very subtle about it. There's nothing big outside of the makeup. There's nothing that's like a, there's nothing outwardly offensive about what he's doing it's just the fact that yeah he's a he's a white british guy playing this role but it's i think we would have been remiss to have not mentioned it in the conversation yeah, it has to be brought up and and, and it's i do not that this is an excuse for anything too but i think it should be mentioned also that Toronto guinness is in almost all of david lean's movies so he was gonna be in here at some point he probably should have played a british person you know but it I'm, I don't think it was done with the intent of I need 
I need Sir Alec Guinness to play this role because I can't find someone to do it who can't do it, who's who's of that descent. I think he viewed it as an important character, and, and Sir Alec Guinness, who's coming off his Oscar, is his go-to guy. He he put him in there to 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 keep the themes going the way he wanted to. It's it's a decision that hasn't aged very well, but I don't think it was done with any kind of uh, malicious intent because of the number of actors who are of Arabian descent and of Middle Eastern descent that are in the movie and that were employed in, in major spots as well. And yeah. you have Omar Sharif, who's Egyptian, who who was nominated for an Oscar for his role too. Yeah, oh, so. no, of course, of course. Um, and just and I also just think too, it, it's I mean this kind of this came up during our Quiet Man episode, but like people just weren't actively thinking about this kind of stuff back then. And that's no, right. again, no excuse, but it's also just true. They just, that just wasn't even a thought um, that, that, that would have even been an, an issue. Um, uh, but speaking of um, who, who could have played what we haven't really talked about the fact that Albert Finney had the role of Lawrence. Um, yeah. And, and, and unknown Albert Finney at that time, he was really just a stage actor. Well, and that's really that it seemed like, well, it, no, that's not true. Spiegel, uh, Sam Spiegel who produced wanted Marlon Brando, uh, which which didn't happen. Thank thank God that didn't happen. Thank God. Uh, and yes. and that's and that's uh, on the waterfront. Godfather. I mean, I'm not knocking Marlon Brando, uh, but not not in this. Um, no. But uh, one of the things that I, I researched was that um, the audition tapes and the 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 stills of him of Albert Finney as Lawrence are the most requested items in the British archives. Uh, <laughs> which I thought was just so great. It's like people just wanting to see him in in costume uh which is great and albert finney's is fantastic as well i'm sure i'm sure he would have knocked it out of the park but it is one of those things now where it's like the role is so iconic i don't know that i really could even imagine him as it yeah that is great that is great and and albert finney is captain's one of my least favorite best picture winners too and tom jones yeah which you, i think is a couple years later you know i uh i i blind bought that criterion because i'm such a i'm such a i'm whipped by criterion and i i haven't i haven't watched it yet but it, it will it'll it'll be watched eventually i'll admit i only saw it once about you know 10 15 years ago so i just remember absolutely i mean it, it, it would be my go-to around that time when someone said well have you, is that, are any of them really bad and it was before I even saw Center of Summerrun. And I went, oh, yeah, Tom Jones, check that one out. But I will, we will be revisiting it, and I will give it a fair chance. So we'll see. For all those Tom's, Tom Jones lovers out there. Good call, good call. I prefer I, the crooner. I was just going to say, it's also got an unfortunate <laughs> title. I mean, you, you can't even sidestep that. It's just it's just right there. It's not unusual. Um, okay, so so um, I, I, I feel like there are a shitload. But if I had to twist your arm favorite shot well we touched upon either one that i would have said you know because i think that there's probably two easy answers and and i think maybe you know what defines how you're going to define a shot or, or where it is but it would the, the, the first place i would go if i had to only pick one it would be the match it would be the blowing out of the match and the cut to to um to to the sunrise in the desert and now if that's more of a cut and you wanted a specific shot then the shot would be the mirage shot of of Omar Sharif coming up through the uh, through the mirage and, and getting larger and larger and in in introducing his character. So those are the, and they're pretty much right in the same part of the movie. So they would definitely they'd be where I would go first. I think my so it, mine is the cut into the into the sunrise. But I think my my sneaky cheeky like you know I'm gonna zag kind of answer is 
uh, the opening top-down shot of him getting ready to go on the motorcycle because we don't see anything else like Love that it. for like the rest of the movie. And I, I remember thinking too, like trying to think all like film analytically shit. Like this is like, it's, it's this weird, ob- obscured, awkward angle shot. And it, and we, and we never see, we never see him full on when we like, cause the first time that we see Lawrence's face is when he's actually on the motorcycle but even then, it's obscured with the helmet and the goggles. So the first time we actually see his face is when he's in the map room. But, you know, really making this, like, really digging deep. It was like, the first time that we see Lawrence, we haven't actually really seen him. Which, even from the beginning, this who are you question is being asked of us because we can't actually see him. Who is this guy? And yeah. I, I love that, that, is, that that's even happening before we've even heard a line of dialogue in the movie. I thought it was, I think it's great. Yeah, uh, totally. I love that whole opening sequence is amazing. And I know that Ian always loved to talk about restorations and there's a big restoration with this movie where I think they got a lot of un, uh, unfound footage or the, you know footage that they didn't have and they had to piece together. They literally brought the actors back in 25 years later and dubbed over some of the some of the lines and one of the one of the pieces that they were able to put back in that they thought they had lost was that shot of the goggles yes right after he crashes the motorcycle man i know david lean was really fired up about about getting that one in there so uh the whole the whole sequence is is really memorable for me just from the first watch just being like that that overhead shot where he's prepping up the motorcycle like wait a minute what what's what is this this isn't been her and i just um, I, I just gotta <laughs> say again i just i just want to say it again the the 4k restoration of this movie is bananas mm. it's it's just it's just it's it's sumptuous i mean you can you can fucking taste it off the screen it's just ah it's magnificent it was just beautiful <laughs> wow yeah and and one last word on the motorcycle thing i actually like unintentionally when i watched this for this i unintentionally double featured this with russell crowe's unhinged from 2020 <laughs> <laughs> the road rage movie which have you seen unhinged no not one? yet not yet okay it's, 90 minutes of pure insanity. and But it's just one of those heart rate movies, you know, where your heart rate is up the whole time. You can yeah. be like falling asleep after drinking NyQuil and you will be up wide awake watching this thing. And going right from that to the motorcycle race, I'm like, oh my God, about this, here we go. We got a motorcycle chase here. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was already in car chase mode. So I was ready to ready to rock and roll with the start of this one. So uh, that, that kind of ties in uh, to uh, at least the last planned thing that I definitely wanted to talk about before, before we attempted to wrap up, whatever that means, um, which is the ending. Um, so, uh, you know, Lauren, uh, uh, Lawrence is, is leaving. He, he's going back home and he's, um, he's in the Jeep and the guy's like, you're going home. He's like, what? You're, you're going home. And he's like, Oh, everything's jolly. Yeah. And, um, and he thinks, I, I imagine he thinks he sees, um, Ali and it's not and he sits back down and then the, the the motorcycle kind of passes him which I think is great that's a that's a lovely really long payoff at the end but then we we just end and I guess and I'm still working through this too so this is such a big honestly bullshit question I'm going to ask you but what what do you make of the ending of the movie well I mean, I love the ending myself. I, I think it's an intentionally anticlimactic ending, of course. And it speaks to 
everything that this character had to experience on the highest level of the military, essentially, you know, he's leading, he's leading uncharted military challenges to, to invoke I, things that have never even I, been accomplished. I, I know before. We, we never even mentioned that he like, he goes for, like to captain to major and he like, he's like, don't please, he doesn't say this, but like, please don't do that. Please don't promote me. And they just, they just <laughs> fucking do it anyway. That's right. Yeah, and and it's it's the it's the retirement of of anyone coming home from the military. It's that you see shit that you didn't think you'd ever see. You experience adrenaline at a level you never thought you'd reach, and now you're just coming home. And what now? And we don't have much of an answer for that for Lawrence. You know, we're left to we're left to wonder what now. We see the motorcycle, and we know he's gonna he's going to get into riding motorcycles and, and, and whatnot, but there is, there is an emptiness that, that's left there that I think a lot of that will be explored in other movies. If you're talking about soldiers coming home from war and it, it is alluded it, briefly in the dialogue where, you know, Oh, what are you, what are you just going to, you know, Lawrence is going to go home and sit in a cottage and go fly fishing, which is essentially what the real life Lawrence ended up doing. He just lived in a college, uh, a cottage in, in either Wales or, or I'm not good with my British provinces there, but uh, that's essentially what he would end up to do. So, yeah, I think that after experiencing this giant, epic masterpiece of a movie, we're left with this kind of empty, whoa, it's just a dusty road home now. Uh, so I, I love that stuff. Uh, I, I, I get anyone shaking their fists at it, though. No, and it definitely was. I mean, and again, it had been, God, I... I my experiences with the movie beforehand, I, I don't even want to count as real watches because they just they weren't very good. But there was, and again, I'm trying to maybe I'm overthinking this movie too much. But uh, there was something about um, this again. I'm going back to this thing because it's just it's just fucking masterful filmmaking when he's with Dryden and you know you have a weird sense of fun and he's like, no, it's Dryden. It's going to be fun and he has the match and he and it, but it's it's a it's a it's a hard cut. It's a quick cut. Um, to the desert and like, and, and we've heard that this is going to be fun and that it's going to, and that he's going to have an adventure. And then at the end of it, we don't end on a cut. We end on a, a slow fade and there really aren't a lot of fades in the movie at all. And I know it's kind of traditional to end with a fade, uh, it's it's a bit jarring to end your movie on a cut, but there is something about the the length of that slow fade and that it doesn't slow fade to anything except for the end. And I I, I think that, that that slow fade is such an antithesis to the hard cut of the fun that he's gonna have that it it does work for me. I just I just remember thinking too that like we're ending with such a whimper. And I know that I know that's intentional, yeah. but it's just it's so I don't know. It's, it just, it's so funny for this movie to be so grand and so epic. And then it's just, it's over. And it's obviously it has to end. It's almost fucking four hours long, but the way that it does, it's, it's, I'm not disheartened, but I'm almost like, Oh, and, and maybe that's, that's the idea. It's like, Oh, and and it's, you know, his life was over before we knew it. And, and such is life, but it was just this, this, this moment, it was just a weird moment. And I, I'm still kind of working through like I definitely I definitely didn't not like it, but I'm still working through it on my own. Yeah, that's amazingly well said. The the cut on the entrance to the fade at the end. I didn't even think about that. That's 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 awesome stuff. I love that. And one one thing that I that I was taken aback by a little bit this viewing that I had never thought in any 
previous viewing before. And that is the, the last time we see Omar Sharif's character and his exit, because his exit is a little sooner than some of the exit of some of the other characters. But we talked about his grand entrance and him leading his way up to the well. And then he gets to the shoots Lawrence's guide and, and Lawrence, he was my friend. And, and it was kind of that moment where before that Lawrence knew his guide and his guide was his friend and he gave him the, the pistol or, or, you know, he, he gave him a, a gift. Yep. And because he made friends with his guide, he knew everything there was to know about the culture of the people there. And he knew everything there was to know. And, and there was a, there was a real a naivety to the character there where I'm just going to go to the desert and it's going to be fun. And when we see Sharif, when we see Sharif Ali for the first time, he gets off the course and very callous, callously explains to him the reality of the politics around here. You are welcome to drink from that well. He's not. He knew that. He's nothing. The well is everything. Very simply explaining it to him. And, and that's that. Now, when we see Omar Shri's character leave yeah. and exit, he's headed to the same part of the screen. He has his last exchange with, with, with Lawrence, and he heads, he heads back to the back of the screen, the same back of the screen that he came from. And then he's outside, and he's now going to speak with um, Anthony Quinn's character. Yeah, Auda. And Auda. And he's now, Sharif Ali has these aspirations to be a big politician now, and he's heading off. And he pulls the knife on Quinn and he goes, oh, you're not all a politician yet. Quinn reminds him of the politics of the tribes before Omar Sharif exits, too. So as he enters, he's the one explaining the politics of the tribe. As he exits, he needs them re-explained to him as he goes. And and his journey is is well encapsulated in that, too. I think. Yeah, no, for sure. And and. You know the whole scene of the, of the that council kind of failing because you have a bunch of people essentially not wanting to listen to each other. Uh, very apropos for today, something that has aged terribly well uh, because it's just same shit, different day. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, that's 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 very true. Um, and yeah, I I you know, and I I also it was so, it's so biting the way that. Um, uh, Allen B and Dryden and Faisal are talking about Lawrence after he leaves the room. You know, we're basic. We're all glad to see him go. Right. And it's just this, everybody's yeah. kind of, and, and like, and, and Brighton, who's been kind of the, not bumbling, but like this sort of side character who kind of gets, kind of gets laughed at a few times. Like he's so, I, there's like, he truly appreciated Lawrence and, and I think respected what he did and just the the way in which he reacts. I thought it was a great little moment for his guy. And that's the thing too. Like all of these characters get their moments. And 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 that might seem obvious in such a long movie, but like they all have a, a scene to shine. And, and obviously we talked about Jose Ferrar, who's in it for minutes and like mm-hmm. steals, steals a chunk of yeah. the movie. Um yeah. Fucking hell of a cast. Hell of a cast. Yeah, unreal. And and I think we'd be, you know, we'd It'd be a loss if we didn't say how many directors that this movie's influenced too. And you can go down the list of any of the major ones, whether it's it's Spielberg or or Peckinpah, Scorsese, Kubrick, whatever it is. I mean, this is a movie where people will go to to pull out their ideas and pull out their thoughts, whether that's from the actual characters or the themes of the movie, or just 
just the physical nature of how it's shot and yeah. how it sounds or the score and the score. I mean, we brought it up a little bit, but yeah. my God, I mean, it's, it's, I, I think that this movie could be, if you did like a Rushmore of Oscar categories, it could be in six or seven yeah. different, or at least in the discussion, That's whether true. it's score, whether it's film editing, yeah. whether it's a director, cinematography, cinematography yeah. you know, yeah, it's, it's there for quite a few of them. For the wins. And, well, and 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 Maurice wasn't even supposed to score the whole thing on his own. I mean, I, I I don't have it right in front of me, but like basically through a series of unfortunate events, the other two people who were supposed to do it didn't do it, and so he created these themes and were just like, oh shit, yeah, okay, you're gonna do the the whole thing. And, and obviously, he does the um ends up doing the score for uh, Doctor Shivago as well. Um, so yeah, he there you go. Um, oh, there was something you said I really wanted to respond to. And I, it's gone. It's gone. That's okay though. That, that's the problem with this movie is there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's just too much. Um, there's so much I could say. There's so much I could say ex- about it. And, uh, fortunately I will have an opportunity to do it again with, uh, with best picture. Guests. Exactly. And, and you, and you guys definitely have a forum in which you can, uh, I mean, I was, I was talking to Melissa beforehand and she was like, how long are some other episodes? I go, well, I think Rocky was almost four hours. So, um, <laughs> so, so I think you have more of an outlet to, to really, really go into it. Um, but yeah, it, and this one will be a, this one will be a two parter. This will be our first two parter. Well, so there you go. Makes sense. There you it go. makes a lot of sense. Um, so I, I, I think we're to the, the, the painfully obvious question time, which is, Kieran, do you think that Lawrence of Arabia should be in the book? I think in a book of 1001 movies you must see before you die, you bet your ass is going to be there. And here's going to be my next statement. If the book was one movie you should see before you die, <laughs> Lawrence Arabia should be in it. So there you go. I was gonna I wasn't gonna go as far. I was gonna say if you take out a zero and make it a hundred and one, but but I hear you. I hear you. Um I I agree. I, I absolutely think this should be in the book. And you know, I I I I have a taste in movies. I I really like thrillers. I really like crime. I like I like stories kind of being flipped on their head. My favorite movie comes from the same year as Shawshank. It's Pulp Fiction, um, ninety four, just a banger year. Um, oh yeah. But my my general appreciation for films of this nature, and what I mean by that is big, epic, sweeping movies, are generally either no. I'm good or yes. And, and this is a yes. This is absolutely a yes. For, and again, for all of the reasons that we said, and to be quite frank, all of the reasons that we didn't. And this is one of those movies that is, you know what? Actually, I think you said it the best. And I'm, I'll just quote you again, which is that if you were to do a Mount Rushmore per category, this movie has a strong running for most of its wins. And then to be quite honest, some of its losses as well. Uh, so, so for all of those reasons, I mean, for literally every aspect of this movie is exactly why you should watch it. And, uh, it, and, and no surprise that this was a favorite of Ian. I know if we were talking, if, if he was here, he would have been running the show. This would have been one where I would have, I would have, I would have sat back and reacted more. Um, I, honestly, with all of these, um, and and uh, people already know what's coming up in the season, and I think every single one of these movies would have been one that that he would have been leading. Um, so, uh, I you know I hope 
that we would have said the things that he would have said or gave gave homage to the things that deserve it. Um, uh, but Kieran, thank you so much for taking some time. You're on the East Coast, so it's fucking almost 11 there. I appreciate you so much uh, uh, talking about this movie with me. Of course, it was an absolute honor. I, I would have would have absolutely loved to, to hear what Ian had to say about it, and that would have been my preference. But to, uh, to, to be invited on this was was a great honor, and uh, I uh, appreciate anyone who listened. And I hope I hope we both did this movie justice as good as we could. It was uh, it was an undertaking, and one that was <laughs> that was giving me stress coming into this. But I'm I'm happy that I got to do this with you. Well, thank you, thank you very much. Um, so, and again, uh, would do you want to take just a, a quick second to talk about Best Picture Cast and and where they can find you? Absolutely, Best Picture Cast. We are on. Anywhere you stream your podcasts, we're on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're on Letterboxd, at Best Picture Cast. We do a deep dive roundtable. These movies, we kind of, you know, sometimes we go beat by beat, scene by scene. Other times we're going to just talk more in general, but we have fun with it. We don't take ourselves too seriously. It's a, it's a roundtable for them. There's usually three or four of us. We're having a couple drinks and we're having fun with it. You know, we tr- we try not to uh, to tick anybody off too much. Sometimes we don't succeed in that in that avenue, but uh, it's it's a it's a fun forum and it's just friends talking about movies. So it's a good way to check it out. That's so best picture cast. Adam, I believe you're going to be coming on uh, one pretty soon, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. I don't want to. I, I won't tip it specifically, but when I was talking about epics that I generally lean away from, that'll be one that I'm on. Yeah, absolutely. It's gonna be it's gonna be fun. <laughs> I uh, can't wait for that. And uh, we also do some fun stuff on social media too. We're, we're in the middle of a, of a, uh, of a, a sub 50 tournament where we pick uh, all movies under 50%. You were involved in that one. And Melissa was involved in that one as well. And I think we're, we're getting closer to finding out what that movie's going to be. And uh, so we are always doing something different on social media. So you can check us out and have some fun with us. Even if you don't like listening to the, uh, the deep dive podcast. Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's very much all over the place. Great categories. You you touch a bunch of stuff as you go through. So yeah, absolutely check it out. Uh, it's a fun listen. Um, so yeah, there you go. And and you can find us thousand one by one uh, Twitter and Facebook. Um, thousand one by one at gmail dot com. Uh, all of those things. Let us know what you think about Lawrence of Arabia. Is this as good as it is? Where does it fall in terms of the goat? Is it in the goat conversation? Mount Rushmore, whatever term you want to use. Uh, let us know and uh, stay tuned next week as uh, the next film that we'll be doing, we'll be jumping two years into the future, discussing a film that I have never seen, that Ian, uh, at least once a month, told me that I should see, and uh, that is going to be John Sturgis's The Great Escape. That'll be next week. Um, uh, again, Karen, one more time, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely, thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, and until next week, uh, my name is Adam, and... Uh, We will see you next week. 